A major insulin maker is cutting its prices. Eli Lilly, one of three producers of insulin products in the U.S., is also making other moves toward affordability for people with diabetes. Our story is coming up on this Wednesday, the 1st of March. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Good afternoon, I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the death toll from the earthquakes in Turkey and Syria has surpassed 50,000. The disaster is just one in a string of traumas for some people. He was an unaccompanied refugee minor himself at the age of 15, but he said that he has never felt a moment where he's not in the storm. Africa's largest democracy, Nigeria, has a new president, but he faces huge challenges, including reconciliation with the opposition after a bitter election. Also catching the waves this winter in Maine. It's 4.01. News headlines are next. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The U.S. intelligence community has concluded it's very unlikely that a foreign country is responsible for the so-called Havana Syndrome cases involving U.S. officials working abroad. As NPR's Greg Myrie reports, the findings come as a disappointment to those officials who believe they suffered direct attacks which caused serious injuries. The report says an extensive investigation could not find evidence that foreign adversaries were responsible. It says the symptoms suffered by U.S. intelligence officials and diplomats were probably caused by environmental factors and existing medical conditions. Beginning in Cuba in 2016, dozens of U.S. officials overseas say they've suffered ongoing ailments that include dizziness, headaches, vision problems, and memory loss. CIA Director William Burns said the findings, quote, do not call into question the real health issues that U.S. government personnel have reported. Many are receiving medical treatment and in some cases have received financial compensation. Greg Myrie, NPR News, Washington. Congressional Democrats are applauding drug maker Eli Lilly for capping the price of insulin at $35 per month. And Piers Windsor-Johnston has more. Calling the decision by Eli Lilly a breakthrough, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer is pushing for an across-the-board price cap on insulin. While I hope other manufacturers follow suit, there's no substitute for locking this down as mandatory and permanent for all Americans. We Democrats as a caucus have been pushing this for over a year. This is a good step forward. President Biden praised the move in a tweet calling on other drug makers to also lower insulin prices. According to the American Diabetes Association, more than 8 million Americans rely on insulin to survive. Windsor Johnston, NPR News, Washington. A federal agency plans to examine potential health hazards from cooking on gas stoves. NPR's Jeff Brady reports the Consumer Product Safety Commission says it's just gathering information now and not taking regulatory action yet. Cooking with natural gas emits potentially harmful pollution when that fossil fuel is burned. Studies show it can lead to breathing problems, especially for children. The Consumer Product Safety Commission is asking the public for information on hazards from cooking with gas and proposed solutions. Earlier this year, Commissioner Richard Trumka Jr. said he wants to keep the possibility of banning the sale of gas stoves on the table. His earlier effort to start a regulatory proceeding was blocked by fellow commissioners. Gas stoves have become a flashpoint in a broader battle over efforts to switch homes away from gas to electric appliances to meet the country's climate change goals. Jeff Brady, NPR News. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey has filed her first state budget. She says the $55.5 billion spending package will help make Massachusetts more affordable, address the impact of climate change, and acclimate students to a changing economy. Healey's budget would increase funding for child care grants and higher education initiatives. The MBTA and the Executive Office of Energy and Environmental Affairs would also get budget increases under the plan. The spending plan's bottom line represents a 4% increase over the current state budget. Rideshare drivers in Massachusetts are renewing their push to unionize. A caravan of dozens of Uber and Lyft drivers made their way from Lynn to Uber's local headquarters in Saugus today. They want state lawmakers to allow them to collectively bargain with the companies. Roxana Rivera is part of a coalition that backs the unionization effort. She says the companies are making things difficult for drivers. Over time, They've taken more of the share of the ride-ins. The workers have no way to basically, you know, raise this issue with Uber and Lyft because they have to operate through an application. There's nobody that they can go to. The Massachusetts Coalition for Independent Work opposes the measure and says most rideshare drivers want to remain independent contractors. An event at the Bunker Hill Community College this morning, uh, Governor Maura Healey highlighted one particular aspect of the budget that she's filed. She's asking lawmakers for $20 million to fully cover the cost of community college for Massachusetts residents, 25 and older, who do not yet have a college degree. Healey says the funds for what's called the Mass Reconnect program will cover tuition, fees, books, and more. Importantly, it's also going to include career and wraparound services uh, because we know it's not enough to just get students enrolled in our colleges. They need to be able to complete and finish their education. Healy is also seeking $4 million for a separate fund that provides support services to vulnerable community college students, including low-income, first-generation, and LGBTQ plus students. This year's St. Patrick's Day breakfast in Boston is returning to one of its earlier locations. State Senator Nick Collins of South Boston hosts the event. He said today the breakfast is returning to the Iron Workers Local 7 Union Hall in Southie. The event had been held at the Boston Convention and Exhibition Center for several years. This year's breakfast is set for March 19th. It'll be more Healy's first appearance at the event as governor of Massachusetts. 40 degrees right now, still heavy on the clouds this evening and overnight tonight. Light rain tonight, maybe a little bit of snow. Temperatures in the mid-30s, so not too cold. Up around 45 degrees tomorrow with clouds once again. Showers maybe as well. And Friday should bring a little bit of sunshine. Highs about 41 degrees. This is WBUR. It's 407. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Doris Duke Foundation, which aims to support the well-being of people and the planet for a more creative, equitable, and sustainable future. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Insulin is a lifeline for people with diabetes, and it can be prohibitively expensive for people with tight budgets. Over the last 20 years, leading manufacturers have boosted their prices by more than 600 percent. There have been some state and federal efforts to offset costs for patients, but advocates have been calling for years for the drug companies who produce insulin to make it more affordable. And now, one of the biggest names in the game, Eli Lilly, is taking steps in that direction. They're reducing prices on some older insulins and capping how much people have to pay out of their own pockets. Eli Lilly CEO David Ricks joins us now. Welcome. 
Thank you. Good to be with you today. Good to have you. Um, let me start by asking you about the timing of this announcement, because Congress just recently capped insulin copayments for Medicare patients. And I know that the Biden administration has been pushing to do it for people with commercial insurance as well. So is the timing of your announcement just Eli Lilly trying to get out ahead of all that? Yeah, it's a it's a logical question. But just to step back, um, We've been working on improving affordability of insulin for some time, really since 2016, when we first launched a copy of the best-selling insulin from a competitor. Later, we noticed there wasn't anyone working on a competitor to our products that were off patent, so we launched our own generic against ourselves. <laughs> That's an unusual move, but the idea was to try to bring down the cost. And then later, uh, we introduced caps on out-of-pocket costs, like we're re-announcing today. Right. At $95 now down to 35 as of today's news. But let but me ask you, answer, yeah, because you yeah. say that full-fledged efforts began around 2016, but this is something people have been calling for for years, reducing the price of insulin well before 2016. What took so long to address this chronic problem of high insulin prices? Well, something changed in the U.S. healthcare market, um, which was that high deductible plans really start to grow in popularity around 2011 and 12. And what that does is it, rather than have a copay that's fixed in your insurance, your out-of-pocket costs is linked to the list price of medications or services you use. Unlike services though, where when your insurance company negotiates a discount, you benefit, that does not happen in the pharmacy side of the, of the business. So that problem grew and grew as high deductible plans grew and more people were exposed to the full pricing of insulin without the benefits of the discounts that the system, the healthcare system was benefiting from, but not individual patients. Insulin is one flashpoint, but there are other medicines out there, such as cancer medicines, which can also be a huge financial drain. Will Lilly lower prices on other medicines, given your concerns about affordability? So the, the unique thing about insulin is some of these products are, are old and have not had copies, even though they've been off patent for almost a decade. So that's unusual. Uh, our belief about how the system should work is our job is to innovate, to make new medicines that didn't exist before for conditions that were previously untreatable. And when we do that, we expect to get a good reward because it's risky and expensive. But that reward should not last forever. It should last for a period of time that, you know, maybe uh, 10 or 15 years, depending on the patent. And then after that, drugs should become very, very cheap because they go generic. And I think that's sort of our contract with society is that while they're expensive, insurance should cover them and shield people from that cost. And when they become cheap, everybody wins for, for reasons um, that are difficult to explain. That does not happen with insulin. So we're taking these actions uh, independent of those external effects. I want to end now by asking you a question about some personal stories that we have heard for quite some time. NPR and other news organizations have reported on people like Alec Rayshon Smith, who was a young man who died of diabetic ketoacidosis after aging off of his mother's insurance. His family believes that he was rationing his insulin because it was just too expensive. What do you say to families like his right now? Yeah, I'm sorry that something like that would have happened. It shouldn't have happened. And there were ways to prevent it that weren't enacted. And we uh, could talk about those. Now those, those cases should be fewer. Uh, our goal is to eliminate that situation. It has always been, but sometimes healthcare is complicated and inconvenient. Um, you know, with today's announcement, automatic discounts should occur even without insurance. 
you know, what I would say is we're taking steps, we're learning, we're improving, um, and no one should have to ration their insulin. Eli Lilly, CEO, David Ricks, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Elsa. All right, NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin is here with us now to help unpack this news on insulin prices. Hi, Sydney. Hello. All right, you just heard me ask David Ricks, the CEO of Eli Lilly, why his company did not take this step before. And he, he talked about problems with the healthcare market. Can you just shed more light on that? Sure, it's a really good question. The company says the reasons were ingrained in the overall healthcare system. So think high deductible health plans, also insurance middlemen called pharmacy benefit managers who exert a huge influence on the drugs a company offers its workers. Lilly says these PBMs have limited the company's options, but those factors have been in place a while now. Hmm. If you ask patients who've been fighting for lower insulin prices for years, it's a different story. I talked to Laura Marston, a person with type 1 diabetes who co-founded the Insulin Initiative. I think this is a stunning admission by Lily. You know, this is a company that has blamed the PBMs that has literally sat there and watched people die who couldn't afford insulin and claimed their hands were tied. And then, you know, one Wednesday morning in March, by the stroke of a pen, they they make this change. So the timing is interesting with the insulin copay caps for Medicare that are part of the Inflation Reduction Act. The Biden administration is now pushing to expand that to people with commercial insurance as well. Hmm. Is the timing a coincidence? Well, companies don't often make decisions that they know will hurt their bottom lines, right? So I have to wonder, does it seem like this decision could cost Eli Lilly money? Well, Lily's shares rose modestly on the news, so investors don't appear to be worried. I called Richard Evans, a pharmaceutical industry veteran who runs SSR Health, kind of a Kelly Blue Book for drug prices. He says ultimately what Eli Lilly takes home might not change much. The company was already making cents on the dollar on these insulin products, he says, because of the middleman between the patient and the drug maker, those PBMs. Drug makers pay PBM rebates so that their medicines get favorable treatment in the menu of drug options insured patients can choose from. That money isn't usually passed along to the person at the pharmacy counter. Here's Evans. Rather than putting the product in there, you know, for a dollar and then having it knock around and at the end of the day after rebates and concessions and all that, you're making 15 to 30 cents depending on the product. Why not just sell it for that 15 or 30 and not bother with the rebates at all? So by lowering the list price to about what Eli Lilly would take home anyway, Eli Lilly is kind of cutting the middleman out. Interesting. Well, how much relief do you think this announcement will offer people with diabetes? Oh, for people without insurance, this is huge. So Marston lost insurance in her 20s and had to move, give her away her dog. Her insulin cost her more than $1,000 a month. So for people with insurance, what they pay out of pocket at the pharmacy counter, a copay, can be affected by the list price. So there could also be some lower copays. Um, but there's a catch. The PBM doesn't treat all drugs the same. Mm-hmm. It might favor drugs from companies that pay a higher rebate and make them more attractive to patients by keeping the copay lower. It can also tilt the field against some drugs by making people jump through hoops for them, raising the copays, not covering them at all. So without right. the rebates, there is a risk to Lily that the PBMs will prefer other insulin products by competing drug makers. And that's a you know possibility <laughs> this company's CEO acknowledges. That was NPR's Sydney Lupkin. Thank you, Sydney.
You bet. Forget board shorts or bikini weather. A growing number of New England surfers say winter is their favorite season. Maine public reporter Marie Carpenter is one of them. I'm on a beach in southern Maine, but you wouldn't really call it a beach day. The air temperature is about 30 degrees, and the water is a chilly 40 degrees. But there are nice little waves rolling in off the North Atlantic, and there's a lot of Mainers who just can't wait to jump in the water. So you were waxing up here. Yes, I am. Uh, Frantically, because I tend to move fast and recklessly when I get excited. (laughs) Gabe Bornstein has his hooded wetsuit on and neoprene mitts and booties, and he's about to hop in at a beach where clean chest highways are rolling in, and there's not another surfer in sight. He says the cold doesn't bother him, even when he gets an ice cream headache on a tough paddle out, because one good ride changes everything. I think if I can get one decent ride today, it will dictate the course of my day. I mean, yeah, one little wave can just like course correct, you know, your entire day, your entire week, it's, it's crazy. Another attraction is that the New England surfing scene tends to be friendly, and it's even more so in winter. You run into each other on the beach, scoping out the waves or sharing a thermos of hot tea after a good session. <laughs> Walking up the beach after catching a few waves, David Kaplinger says that's part of the reason he loves this season. One thing that really, I think, distinguishes Maine surfing is that you have to really want to be out there. And that's kind of common to everybody. It makes a really nice community, so it's a really, really cool vibe. He's right about that. But still, some days can feel like an Arctic adventure when it's windy and big waves are thumping under low gray skies. On those frigid days, you'll return to shore with icicles draped from your hood. And then there are calm days when bright winter light shines through green waves with long, glassy shoulders. Walking down the beach to the water, Franny Martell says bigger swells from winter storms churning offshore are only part of the season's appeal. I love the cold. I love wintertime. And I think the big pull for me is just the quietness out there. Surfing in the summertime is a totally different vibe. There's, you know, tons of people out in the water, but in the wintertime it's quiet and it's, it's just a different kind of beautiful. Yeah. It is beautiful out here, but it's too cold to stand around on the beach. And these fine winter waves won't last forever. So I'm paddling out. For NPR News, I'm Murray Carpenter in southern Maine. This is NPR News. And this is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Coming up in about 15 minutes on All Things Considered, the toll the earthquake in Turkey and Syria has taken on mental health. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Gardner Museum. Experience the art and travel albums of Betty Saar and Isabella Stewart Gardner, who traveled the world a century apart. Gardnermuseum.org. The Dow didn't move too much on this first day of March. It rose a tiny fraction to end the day at 32,662. S&P and Nasdaq both closed lower. The S&P dropped nearly a half percent to finish at 39.51. The Nasdaq gained nearly seven-tenths of a percent to close at 11,379. A company based in Concord, Mass., that turns food waste from retail stores into renewable natural gas is planning to expand nationwide. That company, Divert, is getting a $1 billion infusion of cash from the Canadian energy company Enbridge. The money will let Divert build 30 gas conversion plants. Divert says that'll give it the capacity to convert more than 5% of all U.S. food waste into natural gas. That's 10 times more than what it converts today. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Xfinity Internet 
announcing Xfinity 10G Network, so everyone at home can be online, even peak hours. Xfinity from Comcast, the future starts now. Clouds continue through the night tonight, maybe light rain and snow off and on. Temperatures in the mid-30s for tomorrow, still damp and still gray, should be about the mid-40s. And then Friday, the first sunshine of March. Clouds around two, though. This is WBUR. It's 420. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Indeed, a hiring platform for helping businesses attract, screen, and interview candidates to fill job openings, all from their employer dashboard. More at Indeed.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Metamucil, a fiber supplement containing psyllium, a plant-based fiber for trapping and removing waste in the digestive system, designed to be taken every day. More at Metamucil.com. And from the listeners who support this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. There are certain people who can take credit for helping Americans get to know a particular cuisine. For French food, Julia Child. Italian, Marcella Hazan. Well, for many years, working from his home in Minnesota, Raghavan Iyer has been one of the people who played that role for Indian food in the U.S., here he was on All Things Considered a decade ago. To me, that's the hallmark of Indian cooking, is how you could extract a multitude of flavors by using really one or two ingredients, and you can end up with something that really sings in your mouth. Well, he's just released what he says will be his last book, and we'll explain why in a moment. It's called On the Curry Trail, Chasing the Flavor that Seduced the World. Raghavan Iyer, welcome back to All Things Considered. So good to have you here. Oh, thank you for letting me be with you. This book on the curry trail is about the way that curry has made its way across the world. Was there one moment that you recognized that this is something that exists everywhere in one form or another? Yeah, I think, you know, on, on having done the research of the book and um, um, it just blew my mind, the um, really the far-reaching quality of what a colonial empire like the English could do and then adapt it, you know. I mean, as you know, their penchant for flavors had their cooks put together a cornucopia of flavors that uh, they put them into a jar and labeled it as curry powder. And uh, But it really wasn't until the introduction of the Indian um, laborers that were brought in as uh, slaves and as... Um, and indentured servants eventually, that that's what led uh, sort of the push into the world of recognizing curries and uh, how to use curry powders. Because uh, as you know, we don't use curry powders in India, but we do uh, use it in the world. So, yeah. This book is complicated to talk about because Raghav and I are, you've written many cookbooks mm -hmm. and produced many television programs. Uh, and you say that this book will be your last. Are you comfortable talking about why? Yeah, yeah. About five years ago, I was diagnosed with um, stage four cancer, uh, colorectal cancer. So make sure your listeners get themselves checked because it's so important. And I, you know, that changed completely the way I functioned. I mean, you know, you it's like somebody pulled a rug under you and uh, all of a sudden you're wondering how to deal with something like that. And um, once you figure that out, then you start to figure out how you learn to live again and eat again and cook again. And uh, to me, those are all 
cathartic in nature. And so if I don't have control on my kitchen, I don't have control on my life. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so that food becomes a very essential tool to bring that home. And this experience you've had with sickness and treatment helped launch a new project focused on comfort foods and recovery yes. foods. Can, can you yes. tell us about that? Yeah, I call it revival foods, comfort foods that heal, because um, you look at cultures that inherently have foods that the West has not embraced in terms of its medicinal outreach. Um, I'm looking at any dishes like pho, for instance, from Vietnam. and Vietnamese uh, beef noodle soup, yeah. Uh-huh. And then you look at, you know, rasam, for instance, which is the tamarind brothy dish from southern India. And so all of these, I feel, are such important tools in fighting this um, regiment that we have in a body that's regulated by disease. And uh, so I feel like it is one of those um, best things you can armor yourself with. I don't want you to publicly shame a medical professional, but what was the food a doctor <laughs> told you to eat as you were recovering that made you say, are you kidding me? You're a medical expert. <laughs> he came from a good place and he said, uh, <laughs> you know, how about tomato soup? And so it's funny. So when I called the hospital cafeteria, which has got awful, and I ordered tomato soup and I'm a, I'm a vegetarian. So I said, can you tell me if the soup is vegetarian base. And she goes, hang on, let me take a look at the Campbell's soup can. <laughs> what I the Campbell's soup can. <laughs> yeah. It's like, oh my God, I'm in it. So. And meanwhile, what was the recovery food that, that you were really craving? Idli's, foods from my childhood, which is uh, it's a steamed uh, fermented rice lentil cakes. And those are comforting and they put on weight and you know, just easy to digest. And I just <laughs> love it. And, <laughs> and it became one of those uh, iconic foods that helped me uh, recover at least 20 of the 30 pounds that I lost. Mm. Do you want to take a moment or are you all right? Do you want to I'm get a drink right. of water? Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm okay. If we could come back to the book on the Curry Trail for a moment. Mm-hmm. Would you mind reading the dedication for us? Yeah, literally, I don't have the book in front of me, but I dedicated it to my partner of 41 years, Terry, without whom this book would never have been possible. My life wouldn't have been possible. And he's literally been there by my side, you know, sort of making sure I eat well, I eat right. He's an excellent caregiver. Yeah, I'm very fortunate. Am I correct that you met him on your first day in the United States? Yes. I was 21 and I looked like I was 14. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh, so sorry. Uh, no, I'm, he, I'm, yeah. Yeah, he has been um, really a beacon. And so I've been uh, very pleased with how, um, how things have turned out. So, uh, and it's almost like, you know, you, you know what it's like in a relationship when you, turn around and realize that, oh, the partner's still there. He hasn't left, you know, so, <laughs> uh, <laughs> which is, uh, I guess that's what they mean by in sickness and in health, so. Yeah. Well, this is a question that I've never asked a guest in 20 years of doing interviews, and I hope you don't take it the wrong way, but as someone who has built his life around food mm -hmm. and who sees the end approaching, Mm -hmm. Have you decided what you want served at your funeral? 
Yes, uh, you is. have. <laughs> What's the menu? Uh, oh, guys, all Bombay street foods, <laughs> foods that I grew up with, and uh, and foods of my childhood. Can you tell us a few things that are on the menu you've drawn up? Um, one is uh, a uh, street food that uh, it's comfort food, and well, I always call it a, an adult savory cereal. It's rice puffs and crispy chickpea flour noodles with unripe mango and mm. potatoes and black salt. Um, and I've got um, another one, which is like a, a potato pate with vegetables on a, a slice of bread, which is uh, then slathered on with a ton of butter and you pan fry the bread slices in them, you know. And uh, um, Ari, you know, you're making me hungry. <laughs> 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 well, I can think of no better tribute for you than for people to oh. eat well and think of you thank while they you. do it. Well, thank you so much. Well, Raghav and Iyer, thank you for all you've taught us. Oh, it's a pleasure talking with you. So thank you again. His latest book is On the Curry Trail, Chasing the Flavor that Seduced the World. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Celtics are back home at the Garden tonight as the Cleveland Cavaliers come to town. Game time is 7.30 tonight. The Bruins are off until tomorrow. In other news, Decordova Sculpture Park and Museum in Lincoln will be halting indoor exhibitions for up to three years. The trustees of reservations made the announcement today. The museum's ventilation, heating, and air conditioning systems will be upgraded during the closure. Officials say they want a climate control system that meets the museum industry standards. Outdoor spaces at Decordova Sculpture Park will remain open to the public. This is WBUR. The time is 4.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, committed to impact investing and socially responsible portfolios for 25 years. Learn how to invest sustainably at Zevin.com. When an earthquake struck Turkey, Leila Fadl called a survivor. We don't know food. We don't know money. We don't just spend the life and to protect our kids and to make a small future for them. Now, three weeks later, Layla calls her back. Their conversation on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. On Capitol Hill, the U.S. Attorney General told members of a Senate committee that the Justice Department stands firm against any attempts to undermine the rule of law. It was the first oversight hearing for Attorney General Merrick Garland, who was pressed on a series of issues, including drug overdoses. Garland says the DEA has seized enough fentanyl to kill every single American last year. He says he traveled to Mexico twice, where most of the illegal drug is produced, to seek more cooperation from officials there. We have our DEA uh, working to prevent uh, transfer of uh, precursors into Mexico to capture the labs. Um, uh, to to extradite the cartel leaders, to arrest them in the United States. We are focusing on fentanyl with enormous urgency. As for gun violence, Garland says the DOJ is using new tools Congress approved last year to prosecute gun traffickers. America got more energy than ever last year from renewables like wind and solar, but a new report out says emissions of carbon dioxide rose anyway, 
As NPR's Michael Copley tells us, the increase points to the urgent actions that are still needed to limit climate change. 2022 was a big year for U.S. efforts to slash greenhouse gas emissions. Record investment went to technologies for cutting emissions. Sales of electric vehicles jumped 50 percent. And the country got more electricity than ever from renewables and nuclear power. But carbon emissions went the wrong direction, rising 1 percent as the economy grew. That's according to a report from Bloomberg NEF and the Business Council for Sustainable Energy. The report's bottom line is the country must do more, spend more, and move faster to avoid the worst impacts of climate change. Michael Copley, NPR News. Stocks finished mixed but mostly lower on Wall Street as investors brace for interest rates to stay higher for longer in the face of stubborn inflation. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm Lisa Mullins. The family of the man who was dragged to his death last year when his arm got stuck in the door of a red line train is suing the MBTA. In a statement today, lawyer Benjamin Zimmerman said Robinson Lallan died needlessly and tragically due to the T's negligence. The suit claims the driver of Lallan's train failed to confirm that the platform and doors were clear before pulling away from the Broadway T station. Zimmerman says he hopes new leadership for the state and the MBTA can change its culture. The T is also being sued by a passenger injured in a 2021 Green Line crash along Commonwealth Avenue in Boston. Huang Chong Lei of Boston says he suffered a broken collarbone and collapsed lung when two trains collided. He filed a suit on Monday seeking nearly $45,000 in damages. The T says it does not comment on pending litigation. Governor Maury Healey has released a recommendation for state spending beginning July 1st. The $55.5 billion budget is more than 4 percent higher than the current budget. Details from WBUR's Steve Brown. The governor noted the many challenges facing the state, including inflation, the effects of climate change, the need for increased affordable housing, and affordable higher education. She says her budget is a down payment on achieving those goals. Looking ahead, it's on all of us to ensure that Massachusetts be the place for people to live, families to thrive, and businesses to grow. For us, This starts with making Massachusetts more affordable. Healy's budget contains no new taxes and allocates a billion dollars in new spending for education and transportation, money now available thanks to a surtax on incomes above $1 million. The legislature will now begin working on its own version of the budget. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Something you might have suspected, Massachusetts has had an unusually mild winter, according to the National Weather Service. Statistics came out today based on so-called meteorological winter, that is the months of December, January, and February. They indicate that Worcester had the warmest winter since the Weather Service began to keep records for the city. The average temperature was 33.7 degrees. Boston had its fifth warmest winter and its seventh least snowy winter in history. The forecast for the start of March is coming right up. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by MathWorks, creators of MATLAB and Simulink software for technical computing and model-based design, accelerating the pace of discovery in engineering and science, MathWorks.com. Overcast skies overnight tonight, a little rain, maybe a little bit of snow, temperatures in the mid-30s. Then for tomorrow, should make it to the mid-40s, still damp and gray. And then Friday, some sunshine, clouds around too, though. The wintry mix moves in for Friday night and Saturday. So far, not too much snow accumulation, just a couple of inches, along with sleet and a good deal of rain. This is WBUR. It's 435. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Angie. Angie's list is now Angie, dedicated to helping homeowners get home projects done well. From everyday repairs to dream remodels, reviews, pricing, and booking are at Angie.com or on the Angie app. 
And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Align Probiotic, a daily supplement to support digestive health, containing a probiotic strain developed by gastroenterologists with 20 years of research. More at AlignProbiotics.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. According to the United Nations, the death toll from last month's earthquake in Turkey and Syria has now surpassed 50,000. 50,000. And then you think of how many people still alive are impacted by that number. The families and friends grieving, the people left without a home, or the mental toll on first responders who raced in to help. Well, to talk about the psychological impact of the earthquake, we're joined by Dr. Alexandra Chen. She is a trauma psychologist. She's been working with Syrians for the last decade, including those who fled Syria's civil war. Dr. Chen, welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you, Mary Louise. Yeah. Tell me what you're hearing from your patients um, in the region who have been impacted by the earthquake. How are they coping? What kind of things are they telling you? So the shock of experiencing the earthquake, uh, for some of them, they were not aware at first what it was and were afraid that it might be something else, an attack or a bomb, um, has even over the last three weeks not entirely worn off. And not only because there have been multiple quakes and aftershocks since but also because of the traumatic memories that the tremors and losing their homes and being displaced uh, and the experience of having to sleep on the streets and be very insecure has triggered. Hmm. So an earthquake is just the latest in the string of, of compounding traumas that some of your patients have, have experienced? Yes, unfortunately. As one of them described to me, it's like he has been in a constant storm and he was an unaccompanied refugee minor himself at the age of 15, 10 years ago, um, and uh, fled from Syria to Turkey on his own, somehow made it and survived. But he said that he's never felt a moment where he's not in the storm. Oh. Give me a little bit more information about just some of the practical things that you're saying to help people get you know, through this immediate moment of trauma before they can even begin to start thinking about healing. I mean, take me into that conversation. Sure, we often counsel parents to give children different tasks and responsibilities. It helps them to feel less helpless and to feel a little bit more involved in a ways that are positive. And so even, you know, if you assign a child, um, their job is to take care of all the phones and make sure that they're charged. That little task in emergency setting is a very important one. And they can feel a bit of pride and focus instead of just being overwhelmed by the chaos. We also give a lot of... Um, how to say support in terms of the practicalities of being a parent in these settings. I'll give you an example. So with a lot of them who have been and continue to be sleeping, unfortunately, on the streets, their conditions are quite dangerous and there have been reports of child trafficking as well. So the parents are very nervous, obviously, uh, and no one has really been able to sleep. So one of the practical things we say to parents is take turns sleeping. I, I understand you also see patients who are frontline workers, um, yes. you know, who raced in, who are dealing with trauma of a, of a different type. Um, what kind of advice are you able to give them? So uh, in these settings, our advice for frontline workers are, you know, as we always say, 
cannot pour from an empty cup. Uh, the other is finding small ways, you know, I send them five minute meditations. Often these are things that we've practiced together in session as well as a reminder of recentering and being able to find um, their strength in a moment that where everything feels very out of control. And then also being, I think, um, forgiving of themselves in moments where there's so many of them will say, what if, well, you know, I heard a voice there under the rubble, but I wasn't sure. And I didn't highlight it as a priority. And had we gotten there first, you know, could we have saved more people? There's a lot of self-doubt in these moments. And sometimes, you know, they snap at each other because they're so stressed and frustrated and underslept. So I think just kindness with one another um, gives a piece of healing in a very difficult time fully. Dr. Alexandra Chen is a trauma psychologist based in London who travels to see patients in Turkey, Iraq, Lebanon. Thank you so much for your time and for your work. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Nigeria has a new president-elect. The ruling party's Bola Ahmed Tinubu was declared the winner early this morning. His opponents have rejected the results, calling for fresh elections, all while the president-elect has called for reconciliation and calm. He certainly faces a tough road ahead with many challenges in Africa's most populous nation, as NPR's Emmanuel Akinwotu reports from the capital, Abuja. Supporters of Bola Ahmed Tinubu in ecstasy on the streets of Lagos. They hail their former governor and chant his nickname, Jagabang, meaning leader of warriors. The celebrations erupted in the early hours of the morning for a victory he waited years for, a power broker, now finally in the ultimate seat of power. It's my turn, said the president-elect as he addressed the country, in a reference to his long-held ambition but he was also conciliatory. To you, the people, especially the youth, I will walk day and night. I will walk to the utmost best of my ability to make Nigeria better. The 70-year-old made an appeal to young voters, possibly an acknowledgement by a powerful but divisive figure of how many young people were galvanized by another candidate, Peter Obi, whose third-party campaign made the election one of Nigeria's most tightly fought. In scattered celebrations in his home state of Lagos, a state he failed to win on Saturday, supporter Dixon Albert said he looked forward to a Tinubu presidency. He's the only one that has the zeal and has all it takes to take Nigerians to the destiny that we have been aspiring for. But meeting these expectations will be a huge task. The economy has been battered, unemployment is high and insecurity has spread around the country. The frontrunner for the ruling party won the election, but the clamor for change from many in Nigeria was still felt in the vote. You have an election that has altered the electoral map in Nigeria. Former Governor Kayode Fayemi has known the president-elect for decades and conceded the result showed the country needed something different after eight difficult years under outgoing President Muhammadu Buhari. That is clearly evidence of the clamor for change. The issues that have been brought to fore by those younger elements in society are not going to go away. Clearly, President-elect would have to address them. But convincing them that he is the person to do it will be tough. While Tinubu supporters celebrate, the opposition has vowed to challenge the result, and many in the country feel aggrieved. Saturday's polls were riddled with delays, logistical failures, incidents of violence, and allegations of fraud, especially in tightly contested areas. 
the turnout was a historic low, just 27%. The outcome of this election is not the people's wish. Like many, Basil Ezruki said he feels let down by the polls. And for Tinubu, it's a reminder of the challenges he faces, endearing himself to large parts of this country, where young voters are a majority. I know that it's not going to achieve anything that will benefit the masses, because the wish of the masses does not prevail. Emmanuel Akinwotu, NPR News, Abuja. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Most mornings, I like to go for a run. I can't manage it every morning, though. Certainly not for 2,995 days in a row. That is how many days the newly certified Guinness World Record holder for most consecutive visits to Disneyland went to the California theme park. Just to wrap your head around that number, we are talking eight years, three months, 13 days straight. We had questions, so we called him. Jeff writes, congratulations. Welcome to All Things Considered. Thank you. Tell me how this started. It actually started out as a joke. Uh, It was just (laughs) fun between friends. We were at the park on January 1st, 2012, and the night before, Disney had run the commercial about giving an extra Disney day when they announced the Leap Day 24-hour event. And while we were at the park, we were joking around that how could it be an extra day if you didn't use the others? And at the time, we were unemployed, so we thought we'd use it as a positive to get us out of the house instead of being upset about our situation. Mm -hmm. Uh, We could still do job hunting morning or night. We made the 366 and carried on. And just kept going and going and going. Why? (laughs) I mean, it's one thing to go like, you know, let's make it to the leap day. Let's go for a year. But more than eight years. What kept you going? I was actually still having fun with it. I actually started working at the VA hospital in Long Beach, California in September 2012. Mm -hmm. And I found it was something fun and enjoyable to do. It was my gym. It was my happy hour. It was entertainment. You know, instead of paying for a separate membership for doing lots of different things, it was all in one package with my annual pass. Yeah, I was about to ask how much this cost. So you got an annual pass every year? Correct. And depending on what you're looking at, my passes ranged anywhere from about $500 for the year in the beginning to $1,400 at the end. So for me going every day, even at the end, it was only about three fifty a day. So about the same as someone going to buy a cup of coffee. Yeah, so I guess that makes sense. Um, you made it so close to 3,000 um, days in a row. It was COVID that ended your streak back when everything shut down? That's correct. It was Friday the 13th mm. of March 2020 was the last day that Disneyland was open. How strange was it to wake up on, I guess it was Saturday the 14th, and not go to Disneyland? It was a little odd, but knowing that the entire country or world was having to go cold turkey, I think in a sense it made it easier for me. Um, For people listening who might be thinking, God, Disneyland, yeah, I should go. I should try at least one day. What's your top tip? Bring the largest dose you can of your patience. Because no matter what, you're going to be around a lot of people. 
It's not going to be just you and your friends and family that are close to you. Along with that, bring a battery to keep your phones charged throughout the day because now you also want to have the app on your phone in order to see the wait times or to even order your food before you go to get it. Well, Mr. Wright, congratulations again, and thank you for sharing your story with us. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun and very magical because the whole Guinness World Record title was a gift. It wasn't even something that I had planned on. So when Guinness presented it to me, that was the frosty on the cake that really topped everything off. Jeff Wrights, who is, as you just heard, a new Guinness World Record holder. He went to Disneyland for 2,995 days in a row. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, what the hijab, the headscarf, means to Iran and its survival. And coming up next, critic Bob Mondella remembers when there were eccentric, revealing, and just plain effective theatrical curtain calls. 40 degrees now in Boston. The forecast is coming up at 449. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Bass, Barry & Sims Healthcare Law Practice, advising academic medical centers and healthcare providers on complex legal matters nationwide. More at BassBerry.com. Lots of clouds around tonight, light rain, maybe some snow as well, just a little bit. Temperatures in the mid-30s, so not too chilly. For tomorrow, clouds, showers, gray once again, up around 45 degrees. And then we should have a little bit of sunshine anyway for Friday, highs around 41 degrees. This is 90.9 WBUR, 40 degrees now in Boston. WBUR supporters include Fairbank and Perry Goldsmiths in Concord helping transform your outdated, unused jewelry into fresh and wearable pieces for everyday life. Fairbankandperry.com. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, developers, landlords, tenants agree there is not enough housing in Boston, and the housing that we do have is too expensive. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu has a proposal to help address the problem by capping rent increases, but some advocates say it could make things worse. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered. From NPR News, I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. For many stargazers, this evening is a great time to go outside and experience the emotion known as awe. Because two of our solar system's planets are putting on a spectacular show right now. NPR's Michaeline Duclef explains. Last night after dinner, I went outside to take care of our chickens, and I literally gasped. I was like, oh my gosh! It's so beautiful. These two bright objects are so close to each other. You know, I think it's absolutely glorious. I mean, that's ex- exactly what we want to elicit. It's that sense of wonder. That's Diana Hanikainen. She's an editor at Sky Telescope magazine. She says what I saw last night were Jupiter and Venus. There is no way that you'll miss these two bright lights in the sky. They're the brightest celestial objects besides the moon and the sun. Jackie Faraday is an astronomer at the American Museum of Natural History. She says right now, Jupiter and Venus are doing a little dance. There's something happening here in our sky right now. They've been up, they've been bright, even getting closer and closer to each other for the past month. The two planets are actually very, very far apart in space. They're actually 400 million miles away from each other. 
But currently, Venus is passing Jupiter, which up in our sky makes them look very close. So tonight, right after sunset, go outside and look west, above the horizon. They will be so close that they will almost appear to be having a little nighttime kiss. And while looking up, try something new. Pause and focus on how extraordinary the universe is, how far away these planets are, how mysterious they are, and how small you are. And to the extent that you can look at that sky and think, wow, that's big. That's so much bigger than me. That's so much bigger than my life and my problems, however real those problems are. That's Michelle Shiota. She's a psychologist at Arizona State University. She says that's the feeling of awe, which gives us perspective and is humbling. And seems to just help us calm down a little bit in a powerful way. Michaeline Duclef, NPR News. Wonderful. And now a curtain call. You're at the theater. The last scene finishes. The cast comes out for applause in reverse order of importance. It's all pretty standard today. But critic Bob Mondello remembers more elaborate curtain calls, and he misses them. My first grown-up show, Oliver. Mom and me way up high in the upper balcony watching all those kids down below. One older character, Nancy, who looked a little like my mom, died in the second act, which I found pretty shocking. And at the curtain, it hadn't occurred to me yet that the actress hadn't died. So everybody else comes out for applause, reprising the songs they'd sung earlier, as was the custom, including little Oliver, who sang a song that Nancy had taught him earlier. Then he turned as the rest of the kids chimed in, sounding like a church choir, and they all looked up and sang the song directly to Nancy, who appeared in a spotlight, not down on the stage with everybody else, but way high up on a platform near the top of the proscenium arch, right in front of my second balcony seat. I was a smidge too old to think this was an actual miracle, and a bit too young to appreciate the stagecraft that made it all happen. All I knew was that Nancy was in heaven, and I, I was in tears. After that, I have to say, I expected something special from curtain calls. I don't anymore. They're just bows now. Rarely as much fun as I remember from my youth. Possibly because back then, standing ovations were not routine, so shows had to work for them. Sammy Davis Jr. doing part of his nightclub act after the cast went home to keep a lackluster musical running. Wouldn't happen today. The thing is, audiences love to go crazy. It means the tickets were worth it. In the 1960s, an experimental troupe got audiences to strip and joined them for naked curtain calls. In the 1940s, crowds howled at the end of Arsenic and Old Lace when 12 guys who hadn't been in the show came out bowing. They were supposed to be the corpses buried in the cellar. And I remember one time, it was a costume change that triggered pandemonium. The Act with Liza Minnelli, terrible show in which she'd been all in Halston, silver, white, scarlet. Then at her bow, you realized there was one color you hadn't seen all night. As the spotlights hit her in a gown so emerald-encrusted, she'd about dazzled her mom in Emerald City. City. It was Liza in her prime, so the crowd would have stood anyway, but with that green dress, they stood and screamed. Actors may seem sincerely grateful for your applause at curtain calls, but they're performing, 
I found it moving the first time I saw Mame when Angela Lansbury had tears streaming down her face as the audience stood for her. Two years and 800 performances later, when I saw her on tour and again the tears streamed, I wondered if she kept a raw onion backstage. Still, that's showbiz, as is applause, our chance to be part of the act. I had a theater professor who said that audiences clap not just to show that they like something, but also to let the performers know they understand it. Say an actor delivers a big diatribe and ends by stomping off stage, slamming a door behind him. When people applaud, they're saying, we get it, the emotion's clear, the moment works. Same thing in a musical when a song has a big finish. As Wicked establishes again and again, end on a high note with an orchestral flourish and you all but force an ovation. At a show's conclusion, as at a less flashy song, the audience will clap just out of politeness, but a smart director can give them one last thrill. I remember Yul Brynner touring in a bedraggled King and I toward the tail end of his career. The applause was tepid as the others smiled down front, but when it came Brynner's turn, he planted his feet wide at the back of the stage, crossed his arms in that kingly stance of his, and glared at the audience. It was a command. He was the king, and he wasn't coming forward until the audience stood. So, the audience stood. Could only work if you're Yul Brynner. So, is there a model curtain call? Well, conceptually, the one for a chorus line is pretty great, though in keeping with its the group is everything ethos, it doesn't allow for individual bows. Instead, the dancers who've been desperately auditioning all evening in rehearsal clothes dance on one by one in gold costumes and top hats, not bowing, but doing the big number they'd been so desperate to be anonymous in. Individually singular, together they are a sensation, and as the curtain falls and the audience cheers, they're still kicking. It must be thrilling to be on the receiving end of applause. I'm guessing, of course, based on how good it feels to do the applauding, always leading the cheers, never getting them. That's a critic's lot in life. Though maybe my producer could arrange a little audio curtain call for my sign-off. Anything in the effects bank? Ugh. Polite applause. Total mood killer. That's more like it. Let me just bask for a moment. <sighs> Love it. I'm Bob Mandela. Thank you. Thank you. Very kind. Please, it's, it's too much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Subaru. Introducing the 2023 Solterra an all-electric, zero-emissions SUV with the standard capability of symmetrical all-wheel drive. Learn more at Subaru.com Solterra. And from the law firm Cooley LLP. With offices in the U.S., Europe, and Asia, Cooley advises entrepreneurs, investors, financial institutions, and established companies around the world where innovation meets the law. And from HBO Max, the HBO original drama series Perry Mason, starring Matthew Reese, returns for a new season, Monday at 9 p.m. on HBO Max. And from the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation at macfound.org.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Clouds stay the course tonight, intermittent light and snow falling to the mid-30s overnight tonight. And for tomorrow, should make it to the mid-40s, still damp, still cloudy through the day. For Friday, could have partly sunny skies, some clouds around. Then a wintry mix moves in for Friday night and Saturday. So far, not much accumulation predicted, just a couple of inches of snow along with sleet and a good deal of rain. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Merrimack College, offering master's in education programs and credentials for teachers with a state-aligned curriculum. Online.merrimack.edu. I'm education reporter Carrie Young, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUH-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. The mysterious ailment known as the Havana Syndrome that's affected some U.S. officials working abroad has been studied for years. Now U.S. intelligence concludes it's very unlikely a foreign country is responsible. That shatters a long-held theory it's caused by U.S. enemies weaponizing energy waves. This is WBUR's All Things Considered. Lisa Mullins, that story is coming up. Also, scientists are finally publishing the details of what happened when a NASA spacecraft smashed into an asteroid to try to push it off course in September of 2022. What does the hijab mean to Iran and its survival? We'll look at the long and fraught political history of the headscarf in Iran. And in 1919, Berlin, the Institute for Sexual Research pioneered medical treatment for transgender people and provided a safe space until the Nazis came. These stories and much more still to come. It's 5.01. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. Attorney General Merrick Garland was on Capitol Hill today testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee. Republicans questioned Garland on a variety of topics, including the Justice Department's investigation of Hunter Biden. Republican Senator Chuck Grassley pressed the attorney general on why he hasn't appointed a special counsel to lead the criminal investigation into President Biden's son, Hunter. Garland reminded lawmakers that the probe is being led by the Trump-appointed U.S. attorney for Delaware, David Weiss. I have pledged not to interfere uh, with that investigation, and I uh, have carried through on my pledge. Federal investigators in Delaware have been probing Hunter Biden over possible tax crimes and other offenses. He has not been charged. House Republicans have sought to make the president's son and his financial dealings a focus of their own investigations. Ryan Lucas, NPR News, Washington. People with diabetes may soon have access to cheaper insulin. NPR Scott Horsley reports on a new move by one of the drug's major suppliers. Eli Lilly's promising to cut prices on popular insulin products later this year by 70 percent. The drug maker's also pledging to cap patients' out-of-pocket cost immediately at $35 a month. The federal government had already imposed a $35 cap for insulin users covered under the Medicare program. Drug makers are under pressure to address soaring prescription costs, especially for products that have long since lost patent protection. Scott Horsley, NPR News, Washington. Millions of Americans will have less money to spend on groceries this month. That's because the emergency food assistance that Congress enacted early in the pandemic is now ended. NPR's Selena Simmons-Duffin has more on what this means for people who rely on Supplemental Nutrition Assistance Program, or SNAP, benefits. For three years, people with SNAP benefits have gotten an average of $90 extra per month to help pay for food. That was already discontinued in some states. For the rest, February was the last month. 
Carlos Ferris is in her mid-60s and lives in Ohio. She says it's going to be a lot harder to manage without that extra money. The cheapest stuff is the less healthiest stuff. I learned that because I gained a whole lot of weight eating on the more cheaper stuff like the starches and the crackers. Now that she's a healthier weight, she's nervous about affording nutritious food, especially with high inflation. She anticipates she'll have to start going to food banks. Selena Simmons-Duffin, NPR News. Even with some amount of economic uncertainty, the nation's major airlines appear to be preparing for a busy spring travel season. U.S. carriers saying today they expect to have as many as 2.6 million passengers a day traveling during the busy two-month period, an all-time high, and 1.9 percent above the same period in 2019 before the coronavirus pandemic. Stocks mostly fell again today after slightly weaker than expected manufacturing figures for February. The Dow was up five points the Nasdaq closed down 76 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Massachusetts Governor Maura Healey has unveiled her first state budget. The $55.5 billion spending package includes money to cover the cost of community college for some state residents 25 and older. The proposal also would increase funding for child care grants and other higher education initiatives. It does not contain any new taxes. Earlier this week, Healy proposed a separate tax relief program. She says it would provide savings for families, renters, seniors, and others. Massachusetts Congresswoman Lori Trahan says health professionals need a way to help patients navigate the legalities of reproductive care. Trahan is sponsoring a bill that would allow the Democratic, uh, the Department, that is, of Health and Human Services to launch a national public awareness campaign. She says it would help health care professionals who are treating patients seeking an abortion in what she calls a post-Roe America. I introduced it so women know if their home state can try to put them in jail if they have to seek abortion care elsewhere. These are basic things that 70 million women deserve to know, that they need to know. Trahan says she was inspired to act after the Supreme Court's decision overturning Roe v. Wade. The administration of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis has filed a motion in Boston federal court to dismiss a lawsuit the advocacy group Lawyers for Civil Rights filed. The suit alleges DeSantis and his top officials used false promises of work and housing to trick migrants in Texas into boarding a flight to Martha's Vineyard last summer. Several migrants say they were told they were being taken to Boston. DeSantis and the other defendants argue the court here does not have jurisdiction because the actions that are subject of the suit mainly happened in Florida and Texas, not in Massachusetts. Former Governor Charlie Baker has begun his new job as president of the National Collegiate Athletic Association. His first official day was today. At the top of his priority list is managing the process that allows college athletes to make money from endorsements. The association allows the practice. States have different laws on the topic, though. Baker says the NAA, uh, NCAA needs Congress to develop a uniform federal law to govern so-called name, image, and likeness compensation. 40 degrees in the Boston area. Overcast skies hanging around through the night tonight. Could have light snow and rain down in the mid-30s for a low. Tomorrow, gray and damp. Some showers likely again. Temperatures in the mid-40s. This is WBUR. It's 5.07. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the estate of Joan B. Kroc, whose bequest serves as an enduring investment in the future of public radio and seeks to help NPR be the model for high-quality journalism in the 21st century. 
This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. And I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. The U.S. intelligence community has concluded that a foreign country was not responsible for the so-called Havana syndrome cases involving U.S. officials working overseas. Now, this finding comes as a disappointment to U.S. diplomats and intelligence officials who believe they suffered attacks and are still dealing with serious ailments. NPR National Security Correspondent Greg Myrie has been following this closely. He's here now. Hey, Greg. Hi, Mayor Louise. So Havana syndrome, named that because cases were first reported in Cuba back in 2016. Does the intelligence community now believe they know what happened? Well, not exactly. I think it would be more precise to say the intelligence community is pretty sure of what didn't happen in Cuba and several other countries. This report is the work of seven different U.S. intelligence agencies, and they're pretty sure that no foreign adversary like Cuba, Russia, China is responsible. Five of these seven agencies said it was highly unlikely that a foreign country was to blame. One said it was unlikely, and one didn't take a position. Now, the report goes on to say that there's no credible evidence that a foreign adversary even has a weapon that could have inflicted this kind of harm. This goes against what many people suspected, including a lot of intelligence officers and diplomats I have interviewed who suffered from something and suffer ailments now. How are they responding? Well, they're very disappointed, as as you may expect. They remain convinced they suffered an attack. They've speculated it was possibly some kind of energy weapon, maybe a microwave device, but they acknowledge they don't have proof. Uh, Many recall the exact moment when they suffered a sharp, piercing pain in their head, which caused them to be dizzy or nauseous or suffer migraine headaches. Uh, they say they'd never had these problems before, and now they've had them for years. I've uh, been in contact with two of them who didn't want to speak on the record, but I spoke with attorney Mark Zaid. He's representing more than two dozen clients and says he has had access to some of the classified information. I can at least say the U.S. government has a lot more information than what it is publicly revealing today. And that is where a lot of the unanswered questions arise from. So I'll note that uh, two intelligence officials briefed a small number of journalists on this report, but they didn't share the contents of the actual report itself uh, because that's still classified. Yeah. And so in a way, it remains as much of a mystery as it ever was. I mean, if it wasn't a foreign government, if no electronic weapon was used, then what caused these injuries? Well, the intelligence officials said the individual cases vary, but collectively they were probably pre-existing medical conditions, conventional illnesses, or environmental factors. Um, The intelligence officials said they didn't find what they were looking for, that a foreign adversary was behind this, but they did learn a lot of things they weren't looking for. For example, a a faulty air conditioning system or a heating system can cause uh, changes to room pressure, and this could cause headaches. And and so as they were investigating, they they came across things like uh, weapons dealers and drug dealers near the scene. But again, nothing that linked anybody uh, to, to the ailments that these U.S. officials suffered. Still so many questions and not a lot of answers. NPR's Greg Myrie, thank you. My pleasure.
When I was in Iran on a reporting trip earlier this month, one thing that struck me was the number of women walking around in public not wearing the mandatory headscarf. We asked why and heard a range of reasons, including wanting to stand in solidarity with Masa Amini, the young woman who died in police custody last year after being detained for allegedly violating Iran's strict dress code. We also asked, why does the regime care about this? Here's one answer from a 63-year-old woman we met on the streets of Tehran. The hijab is like a red line for the Islamic Republic, and it's their means to make us frightened. But why a red line? What does the headscarf mean to the Islamic Republic and its survival? And Pierre's Fatmatanis looked into it. You see it as soon as you land at the airport. Posters telling women to keep their headscarves on. And they're everywhere you go in Iran. Malls, restaurants, even rest stops in between cities. The hijab remains official law. But right now, it doesn't appear to be enforced. As women walk around with their hair uncovered, authorities are looking the other way. They are waiting to find a solution for it. That's Hala Esfendiari, Director Emerita of the Middle East Program at the Wilson Center. The recent protests were the biggest threat to Iran's authoritarian leaders in at least a decade. And she says the anger that fueled them caught Iran's leaders by surprise. Are they going to abolish the veil again? Never. This is one of the pillars of the Islamic Republic. You know, it will never happen. But will they live and let live, you know, when it comes to the hijab? I'm not sure whether they have gone that far. This is not totally new. In recent years, Iran would ease on hijab enforcement during public holidays. During the previous administration, under the relatively moderate President Hassan Rouhani, more affluent areas saw almost no enforcement. But that changed when the new hardline president, Ibrahim Raisi, came to power. Sanam Bakil is the deputy director of the Middle East and North Africa program at Chatham House in London. And she says now there are debates among Iran's political establishment on how to move forward. There are conservatives that have tried to suggest that reform or outreach and bridge building uh, to protesters is important. But you also have hardline conservatives who see compromise as an avenue that will invite uh, further protests and, and challenge. So I think we're in a bit of a waiting game. Usually a religious practice by many Muslim women around the world, the hijab has deep political roots here in Iran and has been a contentious issue for nearly a century. In the 1930s, women were banned from wearing it by the then Shah for about a decade. That came as a shock, especially the enforcement of it. You know, policemen were told to remove the veil by force on the street when women we're wearing it. Later, under a different government in the 1970s, young women in Iran, especially university students, started wearing the headscarf for a different reason. A political manifestation against the then government. You know, it was not necessarily a sign of religiosity. No, it was a political protest. Women played a major role during the Islamic Revolution in 1979. They campaigned for regime change. Conservatives, seculars, and leftists were on the same side, and many wore a headscarf in solidarity with the revolutionary movement. But once the Islamic Republic came to power, 
things changed. Esfandiari says the male leaders used the hijab to control women and push them back into their homes. But no, women were pushing back. Women wanted to be free on the street. Women wanted total equality. Now, 40 years after the Islamic Republic made it a law, the hijab has become a powerful symbol with different meanings. The regime sees it representing its own legitimacy, while those who oppose the government see it as an emblem of a legal system that views women as second-class citizens, especially when it comes to matters of divorce, child custody, marriage, and even employment. As Fendiari says, after the recent protests in Iran, it's not really about the hijab itself anymore, but the survival of the Islamic Republic. By now, finding a solution for the hijab is not enough. I mean, something fundamentally has changed in Iran. You know, I don't think that a few reform here, there is going to be enough. Not at all. I mean, these people you see in the streets, they want regime change. That's what they want. You hear that very sentiment in the streets of Tehran. The 63-year-old woman who didn't reveal her name out of fear of government retribution says Iran will never go back to how it was before Masa Amini was killed. The government might try, but the society will not ever go back because we have suffered so much and we have become so brave. People went out into the streets asking about corruption, about inflation, why they can't pay for their rent anymore. And the government, she says, can no longer hide behind the headscarf. Fatma Tanis, NPR News, Tehran. And now some important context on a story that we aired yesterday, a story about the anniversary of the discovery of the structure of DNA. The story included part of a report that originally aired on NPR in 1993. It focused on the work of two scientists, James Watson and Francis Crick, and a paper they published in 1953. Our rebroadcast neglected, however, to mention the significant contribution toward that discovery by a scientist named Rosalind Franklin. So on this first day of Women's History Month, a bit more about Franklin and her contributions. Franklin was a chemist at King's College in the early 1950s, and she produced the crucial X-ray photograph of DNA that was later used by Watson and Crick. She has been widely acknowledged as playing a major role in the discovery of DNA's double helix structure and, in fact, published a paper on her findings that accompanied the research of Watson and Crick. Rosalind Franklin died in 1958 at the age of 37, four years before Watson, Crick, and another scientist were awarded the Nobel Prize for their work, with no mention of Franklin's contribution. Without her work, the fundamental building blocks of life might not be as well understood stood as they are today, and our coverage of the discovery of DNA should have reflected that. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News.
This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Thanks for being with us this afternoon. On Wall Street, the Dow didn't move too much on this first day of March. It rose a tiny fraction to end the day at 32,662. S&P and Nasdaq both closed lower. S&P dropped nearly a half percent to finish at 39.51. The Nasdaq gained nearly seven-tenths of a percent to close at 11,379. A Boston biotech startup that's trying to develop new gene editing technologies says it raised $135 million in new investments. Chroma Medicine is attempting to use what's called epigenetic uh, editing to treat disease. The company hopes to improve on existing gene editing technology to engineer new cell therapies. Business News starts at 6.30 with Marketplace. The time is now 5.19. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the wife of Wilston at ART. Pull up a bar stool to the body new comedy by acclaimed author Zadie Smith. Now through March 17th, amrep.org. You're part of the WBR community, and that is why you're invited to our next virtual community advisory board meeting. It is Wednesday, March 8th from 4 to 6.30 p.m. Details are at wbur.org slash open meetings. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Build entrepreneurial skills and make an impact with a Babson MBA. Apply by March 16th to start this fall, babson.edu slash MBA. 39 degrees now in the Boston area. Overcast skies hanging around through the night tonight. Could have light snow and rain down in the mid-30s for a low. For tomorrow, overcast once again. Damp again. Some showers likely with temperatures in the mid-40s. Again, 39 degrees now in the Boston area. This is 90.9 WBUR. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Procter & Gamble, maker of Nervive Nerve Relief. Nervive is designed to reduce occasional nerve aches, weakness, and discomfort in hands or feet due to aging. Learn more at NerviveHealth.com. And from Paycom, an HR and payroll tool designed to prevent lost hours during the week and maximize employee productivity. Learn more at Paycom.com radio. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Elsa Chang. We're going to talk now about a little known but very important part of queer history, Dr. Magnus Hirschfeld's Institute for Sexual Research. Hirschfeld was a gay Jewish doctor living in Berlin in the early 1900s. Many of Hirschfeld's patients were also homosexual, and one of his patients unfortunately ended his life on the eve of his wedding because he couldn't face marrying a woman, but also couldn't face telling his parents that he was homosexual. So that was something Hirschfeld himself referred to as a catalyst for him and kind of galvanized him into action. That is medical historian Brandy Schilace, who wrote about all of this for Scientific American. Hirschfeld founded the Institute for Sexual Research in 1919, pioneering research and treatment for transgender people, including modern gender-affirming surgeries. When we talked, I asked Schilace to describe what the Institute was like when it first opened. There was counseling and there were uh, classes But it was also a beautiful space. Mm. And people talked about the inside of it as just being kind of magisterial and yet homey at the same time. Mm -hmm. So that it was a place that really mixed the um, two different fields of of interest, right? On one hand, it felt like a familiar home, a place for you to be. And on the other hand, it was a scientific establishment. 
And when it came to the scientific advancements made there, can you talk more about what the Institute achieved? Absolutely. So one of their greatest achievements is actually their attempts to educate everyday people to understand that homosexuality and gender nonconforming people, so that today we would call that transgender, mm -hmm. at the time they didn't have that word, but people who wanted to live as the opposite sex or who perhaps didn't even have a specific sexual understanding of themselves, that that was actually normal and that, in fact, it had a history. But the other side of what they did is they were trying to figure out how to help those who wanted to transition. What would help those people live healthier, happier lives? They didn't have what we have today, but they did have a burgeoning understanding of hormones and they understood that some parts of the body could be augmented and changed surgically. Well, your research not only details the medical advancements during that time, but also the way the general public talked about or viewed LGBTQ issues during the day. What did you find out about, about public opinion back then? You know, you might think that at the time there would be a great deal of resistance and only a few people that were accepting. In fact, I find that there were a lot of people willing to accept this. And it was much more um, understood that the doctors who were speaking on behalf of these patients had a lot of authority. Unfortunately, homosexuality was still technically illegal under paragraph 175 in the German mm -hmm. rules and laws. But you could actually get a pass, a kind of license for what they considered cross-dressing. And that was something, if you had one of those, then you could be recognized as your female self if you had been uh, assigned male at birth or vice versa and could go about your life with wow. this license. And that was considered, you know, your identity was, was secured. And Hirschfeld, This was an actual physical license you carried with you? An actual license, yes. Wow. And Hirschfeld was largely responsible for that. His group really pushed for that. And he often served as the physician who would examine... Uh, the person and therefore sign the license. So you might think that there would be not a lot of acceptance, and yet frequently there there was. And one of the things that was quite sad for me to read was it did seem to depend on where in the social hierarchy you were. Um, there were many cases of working class uh -huh. people accepting their homosexual children, but those who had something to lose and or were social climbing or, you know, involved in government, they were the ones who found it much more difficult to accept their children who had homosexual tendencies. Interesting. Well, despite any tolerance in public attitudes, in 1933, the Nazis came for the Institute, burned the building, including tens of thousands of books that the building housed. Can you just put that in perspective for us? In other words, what kind of knowledge was lost because of that destruction? So many different things. So one of the sad things, um, they didn't burn the whole building. They decided to use part of the building. They burned only the library. So they basically took all of the books and papers, and these contained protocols for surgery, you know, extensive reports on people's lives. They were tracking, you know, how did people respond to different things. It was really, really a scientific understanding of, of transgender issues, they piled them in the center of, of the square and they set it on fire. And believe it or not, many of your listeners probably know about this footage. They've probably seen pictures of Nazi book burnings, and it's when they were burning the library mm. of the Institute. But 
it's been so effectively erased, most people don't realize that's what they're seeing. I see. But it's actually the yes. moment at which they destroyed uh, this material. I can absolutely picture those photos in my mind. Mm-hmm. Well, here in the U.S., you know, we have seen a wave of new anti-trans legislation proposed in recent years. The ACLU is currently tracking something like over 300 anti-LGBTQ laws in the U.S. Let me ask you, for you personally, how does it feel to be researching this queer history from, what, over 100 years ago and see virtually the same battles happening today? It's really troubling First, when I began reading about Hirschfeld and his institute and the public response, I thought they were so ahead of their time. And then I thought, that's not the right way to put it. We just haven't moved very far. And that's really the tragedy, to think what might have been achieved if they had continued as they began. So instead, we're seeing so much backlash, so much ground has been lost already, and they're threatening to lose more. You know, essentially, the Nazi ideal had been based on this kind of white, cisgender, heterosexual masculinity, and they considered that superior, and they considered anyone who deviated from that as worthy of eradication. And so when you see this kind of language returning, it's almost like watching it again and thinking, this is where you're starting. Where will this end? Yeah. What violence is coming? So it's it's deeply disturbing for me because I feel sometimes as though what I'm doing isn't history. It feels like journalism. So that segues into my final question. Why do you think it is vitally important to know this kind of history for everyone, not just for queer people? Oh, because it's a human story, you know. This is about all of us. As uh, Hirschfeld himself said at one point, there's as many kinds of love as there are kinds of people. That ought to be honored, not hatred, not fear, because fear ultimately leads to violence because people attack the things they don't understand. So the more knowledge we have and the more we realize that LGBTQ people have been around since there were people, all the way back into history. This is not a trend. It's not a fad. It's not going to destroy anything. It's been with us always. It's just being human. Precisely. That is Brandy Schilace, author and medical historian. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. This is NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes on WBUR, a changing of the guard in Chicago's mayor's office, and later a look at the years-long fight for gender equality at MIT. Start your day on top of the news tomorrow. WBUR's Rupa Shinoi reports on how SNAP benefits expanded during the pandemic are expiring, and the state has some new ways to help. That's tomorrow morning when you wake up to 90.9 WBUR. Celtics are back home at the Garden tonight to play the Cleveland Cavaliers. Game time is 7.30. The Bruins are off until tomorrow. And in spring training play, the Red Sox and Astros played to a 4-4 tie this afternoon in West Palm Beach. The three Sox runs came from Houston's pitching problems, including a bases-loaded walk. This is WBUR. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Comcast Business providing small businesses with cybersecurity and fiber solutions at speeds up to 10 gigs. Comcast Business, 
empowering possibilities. I'm Tiziana Deering. Tomorrow on Radio Boston, developers, landlords, tenants agree there is not enough housing in Boston, and the housing that we do have is too expensive. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu has a proposal to help address the problem by capping rent increases, but some advocates say it could make things worse. That's Radio Boston tomorrow at 11, only on 90.9 WBUR. Live from NPR News in Culver City, California, I'm Dwayne Brown. Canada has joined the U.S. in banning the use of TikTok on government-issued mobile devices as issues of privacy and cybersecurity continue to grow here in the West. The video-sharing app is owned by the Chinese company ByteDance and has long maintained that it doesn't share data with the Chinese government, but those claims have fallen on deaf ears in Washington, where today a House committee voted to advance legislation that would make it easier to ban TikTok from the U.S. and crack down on other China-related economic activity. Here's White House Press Secretary Karine Jean-Pierre. We have concerns about the app, uh, and that's why we have called on uh, Congress to act, and uh, including what China, how China is trying to collect the privacy of, of Americans in a way that it would have, uh, it would, can present uh, national security risks. Despite TikTok's claims, many other countries around the world remain cautious about the platform and its ties to Beijing. The U.S. District Court for Massachusetts will now have its first Hispanic judge, as Soraya Wintersmith of member station GBH tells us the U.S. Senate confirmed Judge Margaret Guzman to the bench today. The now former state court judge Margaret Guzman was approved with a tie-breaking vote from Vice President Kamala Harris. Multiple officials noted Guzman's career experience as both a public defender for indigent criminal defendants and as a solo practitioner handling civil cases. That is unusual. That's not a a typical profile that you would have seen historically. University of Richmond law professor Carl Tobias says that diversified experience is positive. Because you want a federal judiciary that reflects the people who come into court. Judge Guzman has served as a state court judge since 2009. She deferred requests for comments to the White House. For NPR News, I'm Soraya Wintersmith in Boston. And you're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Governor Maura Healey has submitted her first state budget. She says the $55.5 billion spending package will help make Massachusetts more affordable, address the impact of climate change, and acclimate students to a changing economy. Healey's budget would increase funding for child care grants and higher education initiatives. The MBTA and the Executive Office of Energy and Environmental Affairs would also get budget boosts under the plan. The budget's bottom line represents a 4% increase over the current budget. At an event at Bunker Hill Community College this morning, the governor highlighted one particular part of the budget. She's asking lawmakers for the $20 million to fully cover the cost of community college for Massachusetts residents 25 and older who don't yet have a college degree. Healy says the funds for the new Mass Reconnect program will cover tuition, fees, books, and more. Importantly, it's also going to include career and wraparound services, uh, because we know it's not enough to just get students enrolled in our colleges. They need to be able to complete and finish their education. 
Healy is also seeking $4 million for a separate fund that provides support services to more vulnerable community college students, including low-income, first-generation, and LGBTQ plus students. Rideshare drivers in Massachusetts are renewing their push to unionize. A caravan of dozens of Uber and Lyft drivers made their way from Lynn to Uber's local headquarters in Saugus today. They say they want state lawmakers to pass a bill that would allow them to collectively bargain with the companies. Roxana Rivera is part of the coalition back the unionization effort. She says the companies are making things more difficult for drivers. Over time, they've taken more of the share of the ride-in. The workers have no way to basically, you know, raise this issue with Uber and Lyft because they have to operate through an application. There's nobody that they can go to. The Massachusetts Coalition for Independent Work opposes the measure and says most rideshare drivers want to remain independent contractors. A sick American bald eagle found in an Arlington cemetery earlier this week has now died. The New England Wildlife Center posted on Facebook that the bird, known as MK, likely became ill after ingesting a rodent that had eaten poison. MK and her mate, KZ, were often spotted around the Mystic River watershed. The Wildlife Center says the death shows the need to restrict the use of rat poisons. In the forecast, clouds should last through the night tonight and return tomorrow. Overnight lows in the mid-30s, tomorrow's highs in the mid-40s. Light rain or snow flurries off and on both tonight and tomorrow. Support for NPR comes from this station and from BritBox with a new series Beyond Paradise. Detective Humphrey Goodman solves crimes on the English coast in this new spin-off of Death in Paradise. Streaming at BritBox.com NPR. And from Procter & Gamble, maker of Vicks DayQuil Severe, a daytime cold and flu medication designed to relieve up to nine cold and flu symptoms. More at Vicks.com. And from listeners like you who donate to this NPR station. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. A history-making tenure is over for the leader of the country's third largest city. We were fierce competitors in these last few months, um, but I will be rooting and praying for our next mayor to deliver uh, for the people of the city for years to come. Lori Lightfoot, Chicago's first black woman and openly gay mayor, will not serve a second term. Yesterday, voters chose between her and eight other Democratic candidates, and none of them met the 50 percent threshold to avoid a runoff. After nearly four tumultuous years in office, including a lot of criticism over crime and public safety, Lightfoot came in third place. Now, two other candidates are headed into a contentious runoff. Let's hear more about them and the runoff election from Laura Washington, a political analyst and contributing columnist for the Chicago Tribune. Welcome. Thank you, Elsa. So can you just first give us some context here? What do you think was the top issue that decided yesterday's results? The top issue is public safety and crime. Chicago has been experiencing a surge in crime, particularly violent crime, in the last several years. And the issue is not just the fact that crime is increasing, but it is spreading throughout the city. Murders, shootings, carjackings, and that has become a major issue of concern for voters. Lightfoot did note a year-over-year drop in homicides last year, but there is no denying that there has been an overall spike in crime during her tenure. Is Lightfoot really, truly to blame for that increase in violent crime? 
Well, I think it's a very complicated issue. The city is, is dealing with many social and economic problems and challenges. There's not enough uh, city money being devoted to anti-violence programs, to social service programs. We just went through a pandemic. We went through uh, social unrest around the city. And some of that, I think, is responsible for creating the instability. But I think voters expect her to be able to, you know, she's the mayor, they expect her to be able to solve the problem. Crime is still a pretty serious issue. And every day you hear about events and incidents and people are pointing the finger at her. Well, let's talk about the candidates who beat Lightfoot to head into the runoff. We have Paul Vallis, the former CEO of Chicago Public Schools, followed by Cook County Commissioner Brandon Johnson. What are they offering in terms of improving public safety? Well, Paul Vallis has made public safety and crime the centerpiece of his campaign. Even though he, he his background is chiefly as a public educator, he has been really talking only about crime all day long. Public safety is the fundamental right of every American. It is a civil right. And he has said that he believes that the the police need more support. And in fact, he has said something along the lines of taking the handcuffs off the police to allow them to be more assertive in terms of fighting crime. Brandon Johnson was once a strong supporter of the defund the police movement. He has backed off of that position, but he wants to move more resources into social services, into anti-violence programs, and he feels that more policing is not the solution. What other dynamics do you see coming into play for each of them? Well, in Chicago, you can't talk about politics without talking about race. This is a very racially diverse city. That's a good thing, but it's also a segregated city. People of color tend to vote for other candidates of color, and whites tend to vote with white candidates. So what you saw in the campaign yesterday was that the areas of the city which were predominantly white, more conservative, um, had more city workers, went to Vallis, and Brandon Johnson uh, got the, the, the areas of the city that tended to be uh, populated by more people of color. So there's a there's a debate around race. Uh, there's a debate around the haves and the have-nots. That's something that Brandon Johnson talked about in his uh, acceptance speech. We are going to finally retire this tale of two cities and usher in a better, stronger, safer United City. Paul Vallis would say that he wants to address some of the inequities in the city as well, but his big argument is that we need to get our public safety Uh, situation in line first. Well, over the next five or so weeks, as you're watching the runoff campaign unfold, what will you specifically be watching for? I will be looking for uh, the influence that the unions will have. Brandon Johnson is staunchly supported by the teachers union and many other progressive unions in the city, and they've poured uh, more than a million dollars into his campaign. Paul Vallis, on the other hand, has the support of the FOP uh, and many uh, conservatives in the business community. Hopefully, beyond the money and the back and forth of finger pointing, hopefully there will be a, a real discussion of policy and what the future of the city looks like. That is Chicago Tribune commentator and political analyst Laura Washington. Thank you very much. Thank you. Last September, NASA made history by knocking an asteroid off course. A mission called DART crashed a spacecraft the size of a golf cart into an asteroid the size of the Great Pyramid in Egypt. The goal was to test out asteroid deflection, see if it could be used to defend the planet if a big space rock ever threatened Earth. As NPR's Nell Greenfield Voice reports, astronomers are still watching that asteroid to see how it reacted to getting whacked. The asteroid is named Dimorphos. 
Mission managers at the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Laboratory got their first real look at it in the final moments of the mission as the DART spacecraft got closer and closer, sending back images of what turned out to be a gray, egg-shaped asteroid covered with rubble. Oh, my gosh. Oh, wow. Once the spacecraft went whammo, those images stopped. But telescopes on the ground and in space showed that the impact kicked up a huge cloud of dust and debris. And it kept getting brighter and brighter and brighter, so it was producing a lot of ejecta. Andy Chang is one of the lead investigators for this mission. He says there was so much rocky material shooting out, the asteroid got an extra kick. In the same way that if you fire a gun, you shoot a bullet back that way, the gun kicks back against you. So that's the recoil force. It's an extra force that's pushing against the asteroid. That force, plus the push from the spacecraft itself, had a real effect on its path through space. Dimorphos orbits another, larger asteroid, and the collision changed how long it takes to orbit its bigger buddy, shortening that time by 33 minutes. That's according to a new report in Nature. It's one of five scientific papers in this journal that lay out a detailed picture of what happened in the wake of this experiment. Cheng says asteroid deflection is no longer just some theoretical sci-fi idea. We know this process is really very effective. It's even more effective than a lot of people had originally expected. He says in the future, if a dangerous asteroid is headed our way, scientists will have more confidence in their ability to deflect it, even larger asteroids or ones that show up with less warning. After the impact, astronomers watched fascinated as the cloud of debris around Dimorphos evolved into a long comet-like tail. Telescopes can still detect it. Christina Thomas is an astronomer with Northern Arizona University. We are still observing and our observations are going to wrap up in March. And next year, the European Space Agency will send out a mission that should take close-up images of the asteroid, revealing what kind of crater might be there, as well as the asteroid's mass, all of which should help astronomers understand even more about how to push asteroids around. Nell Greenfield-Boyce, NPR News. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. The NBA's Portland Trailblazers are back in action tonight with the league still buzzing about all-star guard Damian Lillard. Sunday, he became the eighth player in NBA history to score 70 or more points in a single game. Lillard has played his entire pro career in Portland, where his on-court exploits, demeanor, and precocious wisdom have wowed fans, including NPR's Tom Goldman. After 71 points, it's time to come clean. I am an unabashed Damian Lillard fan. What's the big deal, you ask? Many marvel at the offensive wizardry of this undersized guard now in his 11th season. But you have to understand, unabashed fandom doesn't come easy. In more than 30 years covering the wide world of sports for NPR, I have learned, like any well-trained reporter, not to take sides. In my beat, that literally means no chance cheering ever. But then came Lillard's 71-point explosion, and I can no longer hide my one indulgence.
indulgence. The sports world at large was already there. NBA fans openly thrilled at the sight of Lillard's playoff series winning shot in 2014. A three wins the series. It's Lillard. He got the shot off. Or the one in 2019, a Lillard dagger against Oklahoma City that prompted then Portland head coach Terry Stotts to simply smile. The legend grows. There have been so many other clutch moments dubbed Dame Time with Lillard tapping his imaginary wristwatch, but tucked away here in the upper left-hand corner of the country, largely off the nation's sports radar, we in Portland have gotten something deeper and more meaningful from Damian Lillard, a combination of leadership, loyalty, and perspective rare for someone so young and part of today's zillion-dollar super-hype world of major pro sports. There he was in 2018 after New Orleans humiliated Portland in a first-round playoff sweep, angry fans clamored for change. Lillard calmly rose above the disappointment. I'm just going to accept responsibility that we didn't play well. It was embarrassing, but when you go through stuff like that and you stay together and you keep working, you keep believing in what we do. There he was last year, signing a contract extension that keeps him in Portland several more seasons, even though the Blazers remain mired in mediocrity. While other stars switch teams to chase championship trophies, Lillard decided to stay put. Of course, the King's ransom he signed for would make anyone loyal, but he's someone who often talks about loyalty and process. A title remains his goal, but as he said Sunday, The reality of it is everybody's not going to win it. He added, though, that doesn't mean you throw out the moments that come before, the camaraderie, the nightly drama. It means a lot because we work our whole lives to be a part of this. His fans, okay, we, reward his loyalty with ours. We talk endlessly about how Portland can get Lillard that elusive title, trade this or that player to bring in another star, do anything, and quickly, because while he's playing his best basketball, he is 32. But as the chatter rages, many in this Pacific Northwest NBA outpost also understand it's important not to forget what happens on an almost nightly basis, a sublime performance performance followed by wisdom for the taking. Or as my son, a longtime and often frustrated Blazer fan, said after Sunday, forget all the BS. We just got to appreciate this man. Tom Goldman, NPR News, Portland. And you're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR. Coming up in about 15 minutes, a major provider of insulin in the U.S. says it's capping how much money people pay out of pocket for the diabetes treatment. And tomorrow afternoon on All Things Considered, how did an emigre from Hungary become one of the most powerful women in U.S. government in the last century? Little was written about her until a local history teacher unearthed her archives. There was handwritten letters from Harry Truman, President Roosevelt, General Eisenhower, Lyndon Johnson. It was a treasure trove of history. The high school teacher and his new biography of the remarkable Anna Rosenberg when you listen again tomorrow afternoon at 90.9 WBUR. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Boston Graduate School of Psychoanalysis. Discover meaningful work with a master's in mental health counseling. 94% of grads hold clinical jobs or are in private practice. GRE and prerequisite courses not required. State licensure eligible, now accepting applications for fall. More at bgsp.edu.
A beach in Maine has been named one of the 10 best beaches in the country. Needham-based TripAdvisor says its user reviews and ratings put a Gunkwit Beach in southern Maine at number 9 on this year's list. It was 23rd last year. It was the only beach in New England that hit the top 25 this year. A beach in Maui, Hawaii, Kanapali, tops the TripAdvisor list. In the forecast, not beach weather by any stretch. Clouds lasting through tonight and returning tomorrow. Overnight lows in the mid-30s. Tomorrow's highs in the mid-40s. This is WBUR. When an earthquake struck Turkey, Leila Fadl called a survivor. We don't know food, we don't know money, we don't just send a life and to protect our kids and to make a small future for them. Now, three weeks later, Leila calls her back. Their conversation on the next Morning Edition from NPR News. Listen again tomorrow morning on 90.9 WBUR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. Molecular biologist Nancy Hopkins was 19 when she began to meet her destiny. She walked into a classroom at Harvard to hear a lecture by James Watson, one of the scientists who discovered the structure of DNA. And at the end of the hour, I was a convert to this science. So I didn't think about being what it mean exactly to be a girl who wanted to do that. I just knew I had to do that. That's how she described her early career for the Infinite History Project at MIT, the same institution that turned her into a reluctant activist for gender equality. By the 1990s, Hopkins had tenure on the faculty at MIT. She had ambitious plans for genetic research, but she faced hurdle after hurdle in getting the same opportunities, even workspace, as men. So she did what a scientist does. She quantified it. So I was, began collecting data and measuring lab space with a tape measure so I could convince my administrators that I deserved to have an additional 200 square feet of space. But nothing happened as quickly as I wanted it to happen. Then she talked to other women. They also documented what they went through. And it grew into a landmark study that found widespread discrimination against female professors at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. The idea that they had been able to collect this information and make their case to the university really struck me as kind of a model of social change. That's journalist Kate Zernicki, who was first to report on the discrimination study for the Boston Globe in 1999. She revisits the story in a new book called The Exceptions, Nancy Hopkins, MIT, and the Fight for Women in Science. I talked with Zernicki about why Hopkins and her colleagues were at first hesitant to complain. It starts with small slights, things that you probably wouldn't complain about, but gradually over time, they realize that it starts to add up to, you know, less money, less space in the lab, all sorts of things that really do hinder their ability to do science. So it was really that they were so passionate about their science that they didn't complain until these problems were really getting in the way of them doing science. Can I just ask, you are an incredibly respected reporter, but you are not a scientist. And this mm. book has some really complicated science <laughs> in it. How did you wrap your head around like the real hard science that's in here? Yeah, you know, well, for one thing, I have to say I had great teachers in Nancy and the other people who she was doing science with. So they were really patient with me in explaining. But it was also really important to get that science right. I think what really helped me in the end was just to see all these experiments like a story and to walk people through that story. One of the details that I found so interesting was you say these women sort of thought that they were alone. And one reason for that is that the trailblazing women didn't want to talk about the challenges they faced because they didn't want to discourage others. But that had the effect of making those who came after them thinking, 
well, nobody else is going through this. It must just be me or it must be my imagination. Right, exactly. And that's one of the reasons that I called the book The Exceptions. Not only were these women exceptional in their talent and their brilliance, but when they faced these problems, they thought, well, this is just me. It's just a situation. It's just a personality conflict. It wasn't until really late in the game in their careers that they thought, oh, no, this is happening to other women. And one of the reasons they couldn't see that is that there were so few of them. You know, you said that one reason this story appealed to you is that it was such a model for social change. But at one point, your main character, Nancy Hopkins, faces a fork in the road. Mm. There's a choice she has to make about whether to file a lawsuit against MIT. And I think it kind of points to a larger question about whether it's more productive to make change from inside or outside an institution, work within its confines, or take a more confrontational approach, collaborate or go adversarial. So did writing this book make you think differently about that question more broadly? Absolutely. And I think particularly, you know, I was writing this from 2018 until last year, and there's been so much social movement, social change, social protest in those years. And Nancy didn't get everything she wanted in the end, but they really were able to work from within the system. I think some of the men in the book would argue that you have to work within the system, but of course they were allies. So I think this really speaks to finding those allies. How do you view the men who created and upheld the culture of discrimination? I couldn't quite tell if they were malicious or oblivious mm. or what. <laughs> That's a great question. So I wanted to put this in context and just show how everyone was thinking about this issue at the time. I think maybe those men and also the women were really victims of their time and victims of the context. We just weren't seeing how outrageous some of this stuff was. You know, one thing, for instance, in 1979, Nancy wants to teach a class with another man and they're excited about it. And the head of her department, who's a very thoughtful guy who cares deeply about good teaching, says, you can't do that because undergraduates won't take information from a woman at the front of a lecture hall. And at the time, Nancy agreed with him because she thought he was right. And I think there's a tendency to dismiss the idea of unconscious bias. We all think, oh, yeah, I know what that is. I don't have that. But I think this book can remind us that, in fact, we are all struggling with this. We're all pushing back on it at all times. So wh what's the larger takeaway here? That if if you think this is happening, you're probably right, even if people tell you it isn't, or don't settle for reassurances that everything's fine if you know in your heart that it's not? Like, how do we generalize from this experience that these women had? I think there are a couple of things. One, again, as I say, I think it just helps to understand or to see through someone else's eyes, in this case, Nancy's, how this happens and how it accumulates. But I think the lessons are that, yes, we do need to speak up about this. And I also think you don't have to do it in an adversarial way. These women went about it in a very scientific, almost clinical way, and they really made their case persuasively. MIT, as you say, did not have to be forced into a lawsuit. They did the right thing. I think the other lesson is, you know, this country is now facing yet another debate about affirmative action. And these women were almost all of them affirmative action hires in the 70s, which was the first big push for it. And they all really trusted in the meritocracy. They all thought that if they just did their science, merit would rise to the top. And what they found is that a true meritocracy does not really exist. Hmm. You know, the book briefly touches on the progress that MIT made after the report. But I'm curious about the present day. Do you know how MIT is doing now on some of these questions? Yeah, it's actually quite incredible. So 
MIT is now essentially, as of this year, run by women. So the head of the corporation, the president, the director of research, the provost, the chancellor, dean of science are all women. In the School of Engineering, which is sort of the marquee school at MIT, uh, there are eight departments and five of them are led by women. So that is incredibly striking. But the National Academies of Science, Engineering, and Medicine did a study in 2018, and they found that 50% of science faculty women felt that they had been sexually harassed. But they weren't talking about overt sexual assaults or even sexual coercion. It really was the sort of intellectual marginalization, assumptions that women couldn't do science. And that is really the final hurdle for this fight. Kate Zernike's new book is called The Exceptions, Nancy Hopkins, MIT, and the Fight for Women in Science. Thanks a lot. Thank you, Ari. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Drexel University, whose cooperative education program lets students explore a future career, build a resume, and earn a salary before graduation. More at drexel.edu slash ambition can't wait. And from Fisher Investments. As a fiduciary, Fisher Investments is obligated to act in their client's best interest. Learn more at fisherinvestments.com. Investments in securities involve the risk of loss. And from Mattress Firm, whether browsing online or in one of their stores, Mattress Firm is committed to providing personalized service and advice to help people choose the right mattress for their needs. Learn more at mattressfirm.com. And from the Doris Duke Foundation. This is 90.9 WBUR in the forecast. Clouds stay the course overnight tonight. Should have intermittent light snow and rain falling to the mid-30s overnight. And tomorrow should make it to the mid-40s. Still damp, a bit gloomy tomorrow. For Friday, some sunshine. Clouds around two, though. Then a wintry mix moves in for Friday night and Saturday. So far, not too much snow accumulation predicted. Just a couple of inches, along with sleet and a good deal of rain. This is WBUR. I'm executive producer of podcasts Ben Brock Johnson, and this is 90.9 WBUR-FM Boston, 92.7 WBUA-Tisbury, and 89.1 WBUH-Brewster. Listen anytime with our app or at WBUR.org. WBUR, Boston's NPR news station. Eli Lilly, one of the biggest providers of insulin, is taking steps to make the diabetes treatment more affordable. You know, with today's announcement, automatic discounts should occur, even without insurance. Why the about-face from the industry giant and what's ahead for the cost of insulin coming up? It is Wednesday, March 1st. This is All Things Considered. I'm Lisa Mullins. Also ahead, the man who some believe taught more Americans how to cook Indian food than anyone else is in his final chapter of life. He's using the time to talk about his new book called On the Curry Trail, Chasing the Flavor that Seduced the World. Our conversation is coming up. Surfing isn't just for summertime. You'll find riders catching the waves in Maine all winter long. We'll take you there. Also coming up, the forecast and Wall Street numbers for this first day of March. It's 6.01. News headlines are next.
Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Jack Spear. China and Russia, along with ally Belarus, have issued a joint statement calling for peace in Ukraine. The announcement comes amid a state visit to China by Belarusian strongman Alexander Lukashenko, as NPR's Charles Maines reports. Belarusian strongman Alexander Lukashenko came to Beijing looking to expand business and trade. He leaves endorsing a 12-point Chinese plan that calls for a comprehensive ceasefire in Ukraine. Yet Belarus has allowed Russian forces to use its territory as a staging ground to attack Ukraine, and the Chinese plan has been criticized by the West as grandstanding, a stated ceasefire goal intentionally lacking solutions. Lukashenko's China visit also took place as the U.S. expressed concerns Beijing could provide Moscow with direct military aid. And back in the Russian capital, President Vladimir Putin said he expected to soon host Chinese leader Xi Jinping for a state visit. Charles Maines, NPR News. Moscow. More states are considering expanding voting rights to people who are already incarcerated or were previously behind bars. It's part of a years-long trend of states widening access to the ballot for this population. More from NPR's Ashley Lopez. Minnesota is the first state this year to pass such a law. Lawmakers there recently approved legislation restoring voting rights after someone is no longer in custody instead of after completing parole. Nicole Porter with the Sentencing Project says in the wake of Minnesota's measure, there's a lot of momentum in states like New Mexico, which has similar pending legislation. You know, this is incredibly important work to be doing, given the shift demographics in the country. It's incredibly critical to be expanding the electorate and then to be guaranteeing ballot access. Porter says Oregon, Illinois, and other states are considering proposals this year that would expand voting rights to people who are incarcerated. Ashley Lopez, NPR News. China's business environment is deteriorating, and according to a new survey, American businesses are increasingly pessimistic about their prospects in the country. NPR's John Ruwich has more. The American Chamber of Commerce in China has been doing a business climate survey for 25 years. And for the first time, less than half of responding companies ranked China as a top three investment priority. Most companies surveyed said they are revising their China investment plans to invest the same amount or less in the country. Rising U.S.-China tensions were cited as the number one business challenge. Meanwhile, almost two-thirds of the respondents said they were unsure or uncertain whether China would open further to foreign investment. Over the years, the business community has been a stable force in the bilateral relationship, but that slipped as ties between Washington and Beijing have deteriorated. John Ruich, NPR News. Stocks mostly fell again today after a slightly weaker-than-expected manufacturing report for February. Blue chips eked out a modest gain, up five points, but the Nasdaq was down 76 points. The S&P fell 18 points. This is NPR. This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. Good evening, I'm Lisa Mullins. The family of the man who was dragged to his death last year when his arm got stuck in the door of a red line train is suing the MBTA. In a statement today, lawyer Benjamin Zimmerman said Robinson Lallan needlessly and tragically died due to the T's negligence. The lawsuit claims the driver of Lallan's train failed to confirm that the platform and doors were clear before pulling away from the Broadway T station. An MBTA spokesperson says the train involved in the incident had been inspected two weeks before Lallan's death. He called Lallan's death a tragedy but declined to comment on the lawsuit. Governor Maura Healey has released her recommendation for state spending beginning July 1st. The $55.5 billion budget is more than 4% higher than the current budget. Here's WBUR's Steve Brown. The governor noted the many challenges facing the state, including inflation, the effects of climate change, the need for increased affordable housing, and affordable higher education. 
She says her budget is a down payment on achieving those goals. Looking ahead, it's on all of us to ensure that Massachusetts be the place for people to live, families to thrive, and businesses to grow. For us, this starts with making Massachusetts more affordable. Healy's budget contains no new taxes and allocates a billion dollars in new spending for education and transportation, money now available thanks to a surtax on incomes above $1 million. The legislature will now begin working on its own version of the budget. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Steve Brown. Massachusetts Attorney General Andrea Campbell is leading a coalition of 22 state attorneys general trying to reclassify the HIV prevention drug known as PrEP. In a letter to the Centers for Disease Control and the National Center for Health Statistics, the attorneys general argue PrEP should be given a unique diagnostic code as a preventative drug. They say that would ensure patients are not charged co-pays for it. Federal law requires PrEP to be free to the patient, but Campbell says she's received complaints from people who have been charged. The Federal Aviation Administration is conducting an investigation after two planes came within 565 feet of colliding at Logan Airport. The estimate comes from the flight tracking website Flight Radar 24. The FAA says a preliminary review suggests a pilot on a privately chartered plane clearly read back instructions to stay parked in one place, but then began taking off instead. A JetBlue pilot who was landing then initiated an abrupt climb to avoid the Learjet plane. This is the fifth close call involving a commercial airliner on a runway in the U.S. this year. And the United States Senate has confirmed Judge Margaret Guzman to the U.S. District Court in Massachusetts. Vice President Kamala Harris cast the deciding vote earlier today. Guzman is now a district court judge in air. She'll become the first Hispanic judge to serve on the U.S. District Court in Massachusetts. Senator Elizabeth Warren calls this a historic day. In the forecast, lots more clouds overnight tonight, maybe some light rain and drizzle. Temperatures in the mid-30s, up around 45 degrees tomorrow, with more clouds and some showers as well during the day. 38 degrees now in Boston at 6.07. WBUR supporters include the William T. Grant Foundation, working to harness the power of research to make a difference in the lives of children, teens, and young adults for more than 80 years. Learn more at wtgrantfdn.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly in Washington. And I'm Elsa Chang in Culver City, California. Insulin is a lifeline for people with diabetes, and it can be prohibitively expensive for people with tight budgets. Over the last 20 years, leading manufacturers have boosted their prices by more than 600 percent. There have been some state and federal efforts to offset costs for patients, but advocates have been calling for years for the drug companies who produce insulin to make it more affordable. And now, one of the biggest names in the game, Eli Lilly, is taking steps in that direction. They're reducing prices on some older insulins and capping how much people have to pay out of their own pockets. Eli Lilly CEO David Ricks joins us now. Welcome. Thank you. Good to be with you today. Good to have you. Um, let me start by asking you about the timing of this announcement, because Congress just recently capped insulin co-payments for Medicare patients. And I know that the Biden administration has been pushing to do it for people with commercial insurance as well. So is the timing of your announcement just Eli Lilly trying to get out ahead of all that? Yeah, it's a it's a logical question. But just to step back, um, We've been working on improving affordability of insulin for some time, really since 2016, when we first launched a copy of the best-selling insulin from a competitor. 
later we noticed there wasn't anyone working on a competitor our products that were off patent so we launched our own generic against ourselves <laughs> that's an unusual move but the idea was to try to bring down the cost and then later uh, we introduced caps on out of pocket costs like we're reannouncing today right at $95 now down to 35 as of today's news. But let but me ask answer, you, yeah, because you yeah. say that full-fledged efforts began around 2016, but this is something people have been calling for for years, reducing the price of insulin well before 2016. What took so long to address this chronic problem of high insulin prices? Well, something changed in the U.S. healthcare market, um, which was that high deductible plans really start to grow in popularity around 2011 and 12. And what that does is it, rather than have a copay that's fixed in your insurance, your out-of-pocket costs is linked to the list price of medications or services you use. Unlike services though, where when your insurance company negotiates a discount, you benefit, that does not happen in the pharmacy side of the, of the business. So that problem grew and grew as high deductible plans grew and more people were exposed to the full pricing of insulin without the benefits of the discounts that the system, the healthcare system was benefiting from, but not individual patients. Insulin is one flashpoint, but there are other medicines out there, such as cancer medicines, which can also be a huge financial drain. Will Lilly lower prices on other medicines, given your concerns about affordability? So the, the unique thing about insulin is some of these products are, are old and have not had copies, even though they've been off patent for almost a decade. So that's unusual. Uh, our belief about how the system should work is our job is to innovate, to make new medicines that didn't exist before for conditions that were previously untreatable. And when we do that, we expect to get a good reward because it's risky and expensive. But that reward should not last forever. It should last for a period of time that, you know, maybe uh, 10 or 15 years, depending on the patent. And then after that, drugs should become very, very cheap because they go generic. And I think that's sort of our contract with society is that while they're expensive, insurance should cover them and shield people from that cost. And when they become cheap, everybody wins for, for reasons um, that are difficult to explain. That does not happen with insulin. So we're taking these actions uh, independent of those external effects. I want to end now by asking you a question about some personal stories that we have heard for quite some time. NPR and other news organizations have reported on people like Alec Rayshon Smith, who was a young man who died of diabetic ketoacidosis after aging off of his mother's insurance. His family believes that he was rationing his insulin because it was just too expensive. What do you say to families like his right now? Yeah, I'm sorry that something like that would have happened. It shouldn't have happened. And there were ways to prevent it that weren't enacted. And we uh, could talk about those. Now those, those cases should be fewer. Uh, our goal is to eliminate that situation. It has always been, but sometimes healthcare is complicated and inconvenient. Um, you know, with today's announcement, automatic discounts should occur, even without insurance. You know, what I would say is we're taking steps, we're learning, we're improving, um, and no one should have to ration their insulin. Eli Lilly, CEO, David Ricks, thank you very much for joining us today. Thanks, Elsa. All right, NPR Pharmaceuticals correspondent Sydney Lupkin is here with us now to help unpack this news on insulin prices. Hi, Sydney. Hello. So I asked David Ricks, the CEO of Eli Lilly, why his company did not take this step before. And he focused on problems with the healthcare market. C can you just shed some light on that? 
Sure, it's a really good question. The company says the reasons were ingrained in the overall healthcare system. So think high deductible health plans, also insurance middlemen called pharmacy benefit managers who exert a huge influence on the drugs a company offers its workers. Lily says these PBMs have limited the company's options, but those factors have been in place a while now. Mm. If you ask patients who've been fighting for lower insulin prices for years, it's a different story. I talked to Laura Marston, a person with type 1 diabetes who co-founded the Insulin Initiative. I think this is a stunning admission by Lily. You know, this is a company that has blamed the PBMs that has literally sat there and watched people die who couldn't afford insulin and claimed their hands were tied. And then, you know, one Wednesday morning in March, by the stroke of a pen, they they make this change. So the timing is interesting with the insulin copay caps for Medicare that are part of the Inflation Reduction Act. The Biden administration is now pushing to expand that to people with commercial insurance as well. Well, companies don't often make decisions that they know will hurt their bottom lines, right? So I have to wonder, does it seem like this decision could cost Eli Lilly money? Well, Lily's shares rose modestly on the news, so investors don't appear to be worried. I called Richard Evans, a pharmaceutical industry veteran who runs SSR Health, kind of a Kelly Blue Book for drug prices. He says ultimately what Eli Lilly takes home might not change much. The company was already making cents on the dollar on these insulin products, he says, because of the middleman between the patient and the drug maker, those PBMs. Drug makers pay PBM rebates so that their medicines get favorable treatment in the menu of drug options insured patients can choose from. That money isn't usually passed along to the person at the pharmacy counter. Here's Evans. Rather than putting the product in there, you know, for a dollar and then having it knock around and at the end of the day after rebates and concessions and all that, you're making 15 to 30 cents depending on the product. Why not just sell it for that 15 or 30 and not bother with the rebates at all? So by lowering the list price to about what Eli Lilly would take home anyway, Eli Lilly is kind of cutting the middleman out. Interesting. Well, how much relief do you think this announcement will offer people with diabetes? Oh, for people without insurance, this is huge. So Marston lost insurance in her 20s and had to move, give her away her dog. Her insulin cost her more than $1,000 a month. So for people with insurance, what they pay out of pocket at the pharmacy counter, a copay, can be affected by the list price. So there could also be some lower copays. Um, but there's a catch. The PBM doesn't treat all drugs the same. Mm-hmm. It might favor drugs from companies that pay a higher rebate and make them more attractive to patients by keeping the copay lower. It can also tilt the field against some drugs by making people jump through hoops for them, raising the copays, not covering them at all. So without right. the rebates, there's a risk to Lily that the PBM PBMs will prefer other insulin products by competing drug makers. And that's a, you know, possibility (laughs) this company's CEO acknowledges. That was NPR's Sydney Lupkin. Thank you, Sydney. You bet. Forget board shorts or bikini weather. A growing number of New England surfers say winter is their favorite season. Maine public reporter Marie Carpenter is one of them. I'm on a beach in southern Maine. But you wouldn't really call it a beach day. The air temperature is about 30 degrees, and the water is a chilly 40 degrees. But there are nice little waves rolling in off the North Atlantic. And there's a lot of Mainers who just can't wait to jump in the water. 
So you were waxing up here. Yes, I am. Uh, frantically, because I tend to move fast and recklessly when I get excited. <laughs> Gabe Bornstein has his hooded wetsuit on and neoprene mitts and booties, and he's about to hop in at a beach where clean chest highways are rolling in, and there's not another surfer in sight. He says the cold doesn't bother him, even when he gets an ice cream headache on a tough paddle out, because one good ride changes everything. I think if I can get one decent ride today, it will dictate the course of my day. I mean, yeah, one little wave can just like course correct, you know, your entire day, your entire week. It's, it's crazy. Another attraction is that the New England surfing scene tends to be friendly, and it's even more so in winter. You run into each other on the beach scoping out the waves or sharing a thermos of hot tea after a good session. Walking up the beach after catching a few waves, David Kaplinger says that's part of the reason he loves this season. One thing that really, I think, distinguishes Maine surfing is that you have to really want to be out there. And that's kind of common to everybody. It makes a really nice community, so it's a really, really cool vibe. He's right about that. But still, some days can feel like an Arctic adventure when it's windy and big waves are thumping under low gray skies. On those frigid days, you'll return to shore with icicles draped from your hood. And then there are calm days when bright winter light shines through green waves with long, glassy shoulders. Walking down the beach to the water, Franny Martell says bigger swells from winter storms churning offshore are only part of the season's appeal. I love the cold. I love wintertime. And I think the big pull for me is just the quietness out there. Surfing in the summertime is a totally different vibe. There's, you know, tons of people out in the water, but in the wintertime it's quiet and it's it's just a different kind of beautiful yeah it is beautiful out here but it's too cold to stand around on the beach and these fine winter waves won't last forever so i'm paddling out for npr news i'm murray carpenter in southern maine this is npr news This is 90.9 WBUR in Boston. I'm Lisa Mullins. Over the next three decades, more than 13 million more homes could become vulnerable to hurricanes. Coming up on Marketplace this evening, how wind adds to the risk and cost of climate change. Marketplace starts at 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Babson College. Build entrepreneurial skills and make an impact with a Babson MBA. Apply by March 16th to start this fall. Babson.edu slash MBA. On Wall Street, the Dow didn't move too much on this first day of the month. It rose a tiny fraction to end the day at 32,662. S&P and Nasdaq both closed lower. The S&P dropped nearly a half percent to finish at 3,951. The Nasdaq gained nearly seven-tenths of a percent to close at 11,379. A company based in Concord that turns food waste from retail stores into renewable natural gas is planning to expand nationwide. That company, Divert, is getting a $1 billion infusion of cash from the Canadian energy company Enbridge. The money will let Divert build 30 gas conversion plants. Divert says that will give it the capacity to convert more than 5% of all U.S. food waste into natural gas. That is 10 times more than what it converts today. The forecast is coming up. We are funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge School of Culinary Arts in Porter Square, with cooking and baking workshops, technique and regional cuisine series, and cooking couples classes. CambridgeCulinary.com. I'm Susan Stamberg. When the time comes for a new car, consider donating your old one to us. We will turn it into your favorite programs. Here's how. Just go to WBUR.org. 
Overcast skies through the night tonight could have light snow and rain down in the mid-30s for a low. Tomorrow looks like more clouds, more showers, highs in the mid-40s. It's 621. WBUR supporters include the Montgomery Carroll Group, guiding buyers and sellers in Brookline and Newton. More about Matt Montgomery, Lauren Carroll, and their team at mcgroupcompass.com. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Mary Louise Kelly. And I'm Ari Shapiro. There are certain people who can take credit for helping Americans get to know a particular cuisine. For French food, Julia Child. Italian, Marcella Hazan. Well, for many years, working from his home in Minnesota, Raghavan Iyer has been one of the people who played that role for Indian food in the U.S., here he was on All Things Considered a decade ago. To me, that's the hallmark of Indian cooking, is how you could extract a multitude of flavors by using really one or two ingredients, and you can end up with something that really sings in your mouth. Well, he's just released what he says will be his last book, and we'll explain why in a moment. It's called On the Curry Trail, Chasing the Flavor that Seduced the World. Raghavan Iyer, welcome back to All Things Considered. So good to have you here. Oh, thank you for letting me be with you. This book on the curry trail is about the way that curry has made its way across the world. Was there one moment that you recognized that this is something that exists everywhere in one form or another? Yeah, I think, you know, on, on having done the research of the book and um, um, it just blew my mind, the um, really the far-reaching quality of what a colonial empire like the English could do and then adapt it, you know. I mean, as you know, their penchant for flavors had their cooks put together a cornucopia of flavors that uh, they put them into a jar and labeled it as curry powder. And uh, But it really wasn't until the introduction of the Indian um, laborers that were brought in as uh, slaves and as... Um, and indentured servants eventually, that that's what led uh, sort of the push into the world of recognizing curries and uh, how to use curry powders. Because uh, as you know, we don't use curry powders in India, but we do uh, use it in the world. So, yeah. This book is complicated to talk about because Raghav and I are, you've written many cookbooks mm -hmm. and produced many television programs. Uh, and you say that. This book will be your last. Are you comfortable talking about why? Yeah, yeah. About five years ago, I was diagnosed with um, stage four cancer, uh, colorectal cancer. So make sure your listeners get themselves checked because it's so important. And I, you know, that changed completely the way I functioned. I mean, you know, you it's like somebody pulled a rug under you and uh, all of a sudden you're wondering how to deal with something like that. And um, once you figure that out, then you start to figure out how you learn to live again and eat again and cook again. And uh, to me, those are all cathartic in nature. And so if I don't have control on my kitchen, I don't have control on my life. Mm. Um, <clears throat> so that food becomes a very essential tool to bring that home. And this experience you've had with sickness and treatment helped launch a new project focused on comfort foods and recovery yes. foods. Can, can you yes. tell us about that? Yeah, I call it revival foods, comfort foods that heal, because um, you look at cultures that inherently have foods that the West has not embraced in terms of its medicinal outreach. Um, I'm looking at you know, dishes like 
pho, for instance, from Vietnam and Vietnamese uh, beef noodle soup. Yeah. Uh huh. And then you look at you know rasam, for instance, which is the tamarind brothy dish from southern India, and so. All of these, I feel, are such important tools in fighting this、um, regiment that we have in a body that's regulated by disease, and、uh, so I feel like it is one of those、um, best things you can armor yourself with. I don't want you to publicly shame a medical professional, but what was the food a doctor <laughs> told you to eat as you were recovering that made you say, "Are you kidding me? You're a medical expert." <laughs> He came from a good place, and he said,、uh, <laughs> "You know, how about tomato soup?" And so it's funny. So when I called the hospital cafeteria, which is god awful, and I ordered tomato soup, and I'm a, I'm a vegetarian, so I said, "Can you tell me if the soup is vegetarian based?" And she goes, "Hang on, let me take a look at the Campbell soup can." <laughs> the Campbell soup can. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh my god, I'm in it. So. And meanwhile, what was the recovery food that? That you were really craving, Italy's foods from my childhood, which is、uh, it's a steamed、uh, fermented rice lentil cakes, and those are comforting and they put on weight and you know just easy to digest and I just <laughs> love it and <laughs> and it became one of those、uh, iconic foods that helped me、uh, recover at least. Twenty of the thirty pounds that I lost.、Mm. Do you want to take a moment, or are you all right? Do you want to、I'm、get a drink、right. of water? Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, I'm okay. If we could come back to the book on the Curry Trail for a moment,、mm-hmm. would you mind reading the dedication for us? Yeah, loosely. I don't have the book in front of me, but I dedicated it to my partner of forty-one years, Terry, without whom this book would never have been possible. My life wouldn't have been possible. He's literally been there by my side, you know, sort of making sure I eat well, I eat right. He's an excellent caregiver. Yeah, I'm very fortunate. Am I correct that you met him on your first day in the United States? Yes, I was 21, and I looked like I was 14. So, <laughs> oh, so sorry.、Uh, no, I'm. He, I'm yeah. yeah. He has been、um, really a beacon, and so I've been、uh, very pleased with how、um, how things have turned out. So,、uh, and it's almost like you know you you know what it's like in a relationship when you turn around and realize that <clears throat> oh the partner's still there; he hasn't left, you know. So, <laughs>、uh, <laughs> which is、uh, I guess that's what they mean by in sickness and in health. So yeah, well. This is a question that I've never asked a guest in twenty years of doing interviews, and I hope you don't take it the wrong way. But as someone who has built his life around food,、mm-hmm. and who sees the end approaching,、mm-hmm. have you decided what you want served at your funeral? Yes,、uh, you、is. have. <laughs> What's the menu?、Uh, oh, guys, all Bombay street foods, <laughs> foods that I grew up with, and.、Uh, And foods of my childhood. Can you tell us a few things that are on the menu you've drawn up?、Um, one is uh, a uh, street food that、uh, it's comfort food, and I always call it a, an adult savory cereal. It's rice puffs and crispy chickpea flour noodles with unripe mango and、mm. potatoes and black salt.、Um, 
and I've got um, another one which is like a, a potato pate with vegetables on a, a slice of bread which is um, then slathered on with a ton of butter and you pan fry the bread slices in them you know and uh, um, Ari you know you're making me hungry <laughs> 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 well, I can think of no better tribute for you than for people to eat well and think of you thank while they you. do it. Well, thank you so much. Well, Raghav and Iyer, thank you for all you've taught us. Oh, it's a pleasure talking with you, so thank you again. His latest book is On the Curry Trail, Chasing the Flavor that Seduced the World. You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Come back tomorrow to WBUR in the morning to get your news as you wake up. Tap to listen on the WBUR mobile app while you're working out or heading out to work. Still heavy on the clouds tonight. Light rain, maybe a little snow. Temperatures in the mid-30s, up around 45 degrees tomorrow with more clouds and some showers as well. This is WBUR. It is now 6.30. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. And the Huntington and Front Porch Arts Collective with K-I-S-S-I-N-G. A funny date night play and love letter to our city. Starts Friday, huntingtontheater.org.